Harry. I'm proud to say I'm 50 years old and I like to kick, stretch, and kick. I'm 50. 50 years old. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 50 of Stuff Said, the show where I, Greg Shegel, cartoonist, talk to people in the worlds of comics, cartooning, and beyond. You know, I did not even realize that this was episode 50 until I was recorded, getting ready to record this introduction and I fired up the, the internet to start putting the, the webpage together. The entry, rather, for this episode. I was like, oh, wow, 50. And I knew it was coming up, but I had forgotten that it was this one. I thought it was going to be next month. But this is the 50th episode. So how am I commemorating such an event that I just realized was happening when I realized it? Well, you heard it. That clip. That's the commemoration. That and another hopefully, by your opinion, great episode of Stuff Said, wherein I talk to Kurt Busick. And it's a long episode. It's a doozy. It's, well, a doozy. That's the wrong word. It's over two hours. Kurt and I talked for a long time. What you get to hear is about two hours and 18 minutes of that conversation, which I think is an interesting two hours and 18 minutes. I hope you do, too. We talk about a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff is said. Get it? Get it? But, yeah, Kurt and I talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, I just said that. How about this, guys? 50 episodes. This hasn't changed, right? My telling, my, my repeating the same things over and over again? Or telegraphing what's in the show? But, to that end, a couple of things before this starts. One, before we recorded, I'd given Kurt a copy of the chapter one preview of Picks that comes up once or twice I think if I remember correctly when I say the comic you're holding in your hand or something to that effect that's Picks. more on that in a second the other thing is this episode on iTunes has a marking of explicit that is because at a certain point we start talking about mercury poisoning and heavy metals poisoning and Kurt being sick and there are some expletives that's really the only time there's any language that's suggestive or questionable. Otherwise, this episode's pretty clean. Also, in the very beginning, we talk about a story called Day of the Losers. And I mentioned in the conversation that I might cut something so as to not spoil it. I did not cut it. The story gets spoiled. So if you if you don't want that short story spoiled, skip ahead, you know, 15, 20 seconds. I think I really should have written this down. So unprepared, 50 episodes in. Yes. I'm going to do a bunch of plugs quickly. One, Picks, One Weirdest Weekend, my original graphic novel, is available now at PixComic.com slash store. PixComic, P-I-X-C-O-M-I-C dot com slash store. Go there. You can buy the book. You can buy it print. You can buy it digital. You can buy it print and digital. You can buy it print with a sketch. You'll see. Go there. You'll see it. The first chapter is available for free at PixComic.com. So you go there and find that. Read that and say, ooh, I want to read the rest of this book. And then buy it. 
And if you don't want to buy the book, but you still want to support me and what I'm doing here with Stuff Said, go to StuffSaidShow.com, click the donate button, and uh, throw a few bucks my way. 50 episodes in, it's all been free. Help, help it out? I don't think that makes any sense. Anyway, uh, more to come after this long talk with Kurt, which I hope you enjoy, and I hope you'll stick around after for the other stuff I have to say. So until then, uh, here's uh, here's me talking to Kurt. I feel like there's a lot of reasons I don't work for Marvel anymore. I didn't work there very long. Well, there you go. Two and a half years. But I made an impression on you, clearly. Yes. I mean, how many assistants do you remember? There's you, there's Sumerak, um, there's uh, Glenn Greenberg. Okay, so I all think, of them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's, that's, uh, that makes me feel better. Because basically I thought, maybe I'm just remembered because uh, I never went away. Like I was just like a nuisance. No, no. I mean, I am a nuisance. Well, it goes without saying. Yeah, you have a Kryptonian name. That means you've got to be a nuisance. Greg or Shegel? Shegel. That's Kryptonian. Well, it ends with an L. Yeah, but it's not Shegel. How's it spelled? S C H I G I E L. It ends I- with an E L, but it's not pronounced. So you're Shiggy L of Krypton. <laughs> then I am Kryptonian. Yeah. I, I, I do not have the powers. Well, gold kryptonite can do that. You're saying that somehow I was exposed to gold kryptonite. Yes. And have lost my powers. That, that it's a little known legend of Krypton after the destruction that those Kryptonians who, who survived the destruction whenever, when, you know, when it came time for the bris, <laughs> uh, they would be visited by, by Moel, the last rabbi of Krypton. And if they were on an Earth-like planet, then he had to use the gold kryptonite. Otherwise, no bris. All right. Did you just come up with that, or is that something you've said before? Oh, many, many times okay. before. That's my joke. No, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. It was too well-formed for it to have just been <laughs> off the top. You'd, you'd be an improvisational mastermind of Superman proportions. Yes, yes. Well, I, 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 the first time I came up with it, it was improvised. But okay. I'm, still, I'm still very proud of Moel, Last Rabbi of Krypton. So in preparation for this, I read a short story called Day of the Losers. Uh-huh. That you wow, that's t- research. Yeah. Because you tweeted about it recently as, a, as a, a great example of a great short story. Isn't it good? It's quite good. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything. Uh-huh. It was pretty easy to get. I got it at the library digitally. So I was able to read it 10 pages. Yeah, it's also in uh, the Dick Francis anthology, Field of 13. That's where I read it. Okay. But I read the digital version. Okay. Using the uh, you know, digital stuff. I read the optical version. Oh, is that um, right? I used Google my Google Glass? <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, I actually found it. It was originally published or possibly republished in like uh, Alfred Hitchcock or Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine or something, um, or maybe even Sports Illustrated. But there was no collection of his short fiction at the time I first ran into it, and I was just flabbergasted at how good it was. Yeah, I want to talk about that before we talk about anything else. So- okay, keep in mind I haven't read it for years. That's okay. Okay. It, it left an impression. Yes. Enough that you remembered the name of it, the collection it's in, uh-huh. and who wrote it. Yes. I've read short stories. I couldn't necessarily tell you all that. So what? My my takeaway from it was it was, it was there were there were twists, turns, unexpected things happen. Yes. It was beautifully plotted, okay. so that the plot threads all came together 
to create this logical ending that was in many ways the right ending. Things went the right way, and almost everybody walked away feeling like they'd lost. But then there was an extra tag at the end. I don't know if you remember the very last bit of it. and Maybe I misread it because it's, it's British. Mm-hmm. All of the language, I had, I had some tricky parts. I'm like, what are they talking about? I don't quite know what that is, but I figured it out. I may, I may cut this part out in case somebody right, wants to read it. Yeah, you don't want to spoil it. But it's basically a guy uh, has stolen money. He goes right, to the right, racetrack. right. He gets away because he loses. Right. But then it's revealed like he's going to his job and he's a prison guard. Yeah. Like that's the last line. And I thought that was yeah, it is tremendous. Just, it's just, it's, <laughs> I think I described it as a masterpiece of irony. Yes. Which is funny because when you tweeted about it, you were also talking about Will Eisner and Jules Pfeiffer. But Will Eisner, who I, I took his workshop many moons ago, talked about short stories and the ironic twist and O. Henry, mm-hmm. who also had a knack for taking you in one direction and then getting yeah. you back. And then, but then I just read today your letter of the month in Astro City. You cop to not really knowing the Twilight Zone terribly well. No, I don't. Which is sort of the modern, relatively modern, I guess, in 40 years, version of that kind of ironic. Yeah, but, but the Twilight Zone is doing the, I mean, they're doing the ironic and or surprising twist ending that comes out of the science fiction pulp field of, of Bradbury and Finney and uh, guys like that. Um, I don't know that, I mean, I haven't seen the Twilight Zone, but everything I've read about the Twilight You've Zone. You've never seen any Twilight Zones? I saw the episode with the Civil War soldier who's walking home, and by the end of the episode, you find out he's dead. Okay. Uh, that's the only one I've seen really? all the way through. You know, they show marathons every year at New Year's. Yeah, yeah. I didn't grow up watching television. I think you would love The Monsters Live on Maple Street. I've I've heard... Uh, that's a good one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at some point... It's it's on my list of things I should catch up to, but but when I was a kid, my parents had three rules for us kids. I mean, they had more than three, but three sort of standing rules that seemed to go together was uh, no television unless it was something that they approved of, uh, no comic books, and no candy unless they they gave it to us. They met in college, and they were uh, you know they started college in like 1953, so. The whole Wortham thing was, was right. hitting them right as their relationship was was getting going. What'd you do on Halloween? There was no candy. No well, on Halloween we went out and we got candy, you know, in the neighborhood. Okay. Um, and then they they went through it. But Halloween was like a yeah, we're going to allow this. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't you know you didn't you didn't go you know while you're off shopping with mom, she's not going to buy you a bunch of candy bars. You know, you don't get candy on a, on a trip. Halloween was a, you, you pick out once a year. Yeah. And that was allowed. That was okay. But as a result of all this, I didn't start reading comics regularly. I, you know, I read them at barbershops and at, at, uh, uh, doctor's offices and friends' houses and things like that. But I didn't start reading them regularly until I was 14 years old. I didn't start watching television regularly until, well, basically until my older sisters were old enough to start ignoring my parents' rules. And so they'd put the TV on. Uh, I've never really been a big candy guy. I think I, I credit their rules a lot with me not starting to consume junk culture 
until I had a pretty solid aesthetic of what was good and what wasn't. And I wasn't going to waste my time on stupid stuff. People would have different ideas of what's stupid and what isn't, of course. But my two younger sisters were, they were, you know, they were the next rung down on the age ladder when my older sisters started ignoring my parents' rules. And so all of a sudden that was, that was when the TV ban went out the window. Right. So they grew up watching whatever the hell was on. You know, that, that, that I, I'm sure that my, my sisters Faith and Jenny have watched probably most episodes of Family Affair and the Brady Bunch. Right. Because they were rerun every day. When I had the freedom to watch what television I wanted to watch, I watched The Prisoner. I watched Monty Python. I watched Speed Racer. Um, I mean, really, one of those things is not like the others. But, but you know, I, I, I watched this sort of afternoon block of, of Japanese animated shows. I watched, uh, you know, British comedy and drama. I didn't watch a lot of, Pop. you know, I didn't, I didn't watch stuff. Family Affair just because it was on. I had books. Right. I would go read books instead. You didn't, you didn't much take to pop culture. Right. Well, I mean, when I started reading comics, I was reading lots of comics. And I, I watched every episode of, of, of Star Trek once I could, you know, watch that in reruns. But I was, I was into the pop culture side that was... I don't know, it's tough to call the original uh, run of Star Trek smarter, but let's face it, it was smarter than The Courtship of Eddie's Father. I've seen none of either. Okay. Well, there you, you've never seen the original Star Trek. You've never seen The Courtship of Eddie's nope. Father. I know they've been on. People let me tell. No, sorry. I like that song. Uh-huh. That's good. That's Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson, I know. Yeah. Courtship of Eddie's Father. I, I know Bill Bixby was in it, right? Yeah. 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 That's all I got. Okay. So... Uh, if I if I thought for a little while, I could come up with the name of the kid who uh, who played Eddie, but I think it was Eddie Munster. No, Brandon Cruz. <laughs> okay, that's important that we got that out. Yeah, yeah, because once you once you drop a piece of uh, of of missing information, the brain scrambles to, I to think fill that, that I hole. I think it's yeah. I don't disagree. Yeah, but you're going to cut all this. I don't know. Uh oh. We'll see. We'll see what makes it. I hereby apologize to the audience. Well, I first became familiar with you as a, as a comic book writer, like most other people, with Marvels and then Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And we're not really going to talk about those things because you've talked about them enough. Okay. Right? That makes sense to you me. You must be tired of talking about those things. Uh, it varies, but, but uh, you know, it's certainly more fun going in other directions. Okay, good. We're going to go in other directions. When I got my internship at Marvel, you were writing Untold Tales of Spider-Man, uh-huh. and I was told I was going to be in that office, and that was very exciting to me because that was... A good book, and I was into it. And the last thing I saw as an intern was your pitch for Thunderbolts, uh-huh. the the written document with the names of the characters and the reveal and all that stuff. And when I had left my internship is when I think that summer or after that fall after my internship is when they announced Heroes Reborn. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't quite know what was happening; we just knew Onslaught was going on, uh-huh. and all the characters were going into going somewhere. Uh-huh. Uh, and then later that. That year at Fall in College, one of my friends told me, like, hey, who is still at Marvel? This thing is happening, blah, blah, blah. So I want to talk about Thunderbolts a little bit. Okay. In terms of when that happens and the heroes are going away to Heroes Reborn. Yeah. Is your head at that point saying, like, all right, I am, I'm setting myself up to when these heroes come back, 
I'm, I'm poising myself to get in a, in a pole position for one of these books or was, or was there no idea that the heroes would be coming back? Um, how calculated was, was your, uh, rise? Not calculated at all. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've never been smart that way. I, I've never, you know, the closest thing I've done to making a political writing decision was when, uh, we were told that, uh, Marvel, the higher ups wanted to do a, a, a line wide crossover. And I said to Tom Brevoort, well, why don't we pitch one? Because it's better to be driving the bus than under it. Sure. I don't like crossovers. I didn't want to do a crossover, but if I'm going to do a crossover, I'd like it to be my story because otherwise I had to write somebody else's story. And that's worse. Which one did you pitch? Well, I pitched a couple, but the one that got done was maximum security. Okay. Uh, we actually had, uh, this just came up on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. I pitched one called Y2 Kang. Okay. And the premise was that when the clock ticked over from December 31st, 1999 to the next day, it was January 1st, 1900. And Kang had done this, but we saw all, you know, we saw steampunk Iron Man. We saw uh, stable boy Peter Parker working for Robert Barron, uh, J. Jonah Jameson. We saw like, these, this, this turn-of-the-century version of all the characters. Right. And the, the editor-in-chief and whoever else was in on the decision sat on the proposal and then came back and says, yes, we'd like to do this. But the soonest that the first issue could come out, was april of the year 2000 and it was like no too late time over it happens in january or it just doesn't happen so we did maximum security instead yeah that was right about when i left mm -hmm. my assistant editorship i think it was maximum security uh started going but on thunderbolts i mean thunderbolts originally was an idea i'd had i was driving from new jersey where i lived up to uh, Massachusetts where my folks were and whenever I would be on a long drive I would basically assign myself books and huh. come up with ideas for them as a way of, of you know staying alert and, and, and thinking and passing the time and, and on one of these trips I thought you know if I was writing Avengers what would I do and I came up with this completely unworkable idea that over the course of a year you kept having Avengers leave and new characters join. And at the end of the year, you find out that all these new characters are the Masters of Evil in disguise. So the Avengers are made up of the Masters of Evil and Captain America. Now what happens? And the reason it wouldn't work, of course, was because if you spent a year having popular characters leave Avengers and new characters, apparently new characters join up, by the end of the year, the, the, the fans would just be in revolt. How come you keep on throwing away the characters I like and bringing in these rotten characters you just made up? Yeah. Um, but I liked the idea. I liked the, uh, the setup for that. And I've always been a big fan of uh, supervillains who become superheroes. Uh, my favorite Marvel character is Hawkeye for a reason. So when Onslaught happened, at one point Tom Brevoort called me and he said, we're talking about figuring out what to do. You know, there's this big hole in the middle of the Marvel Universe, and we got to figure out what's going on. And there's going to be a, uh, a summit. You know, we're going to get together, get, get together all the writers and some of the artists that's over through a summit and talk about what direction we, we can do. How can we build something from this? And I told him I had 
you know, I didn't have any particular ideas. And then half an hour later, I called him back and said, you know, I do have an idea. And I told him this, this Avengers idea. And I said, what if that wasn't the Avengers? What if that was a new team? The Avengers are gone. The Fantastic Four are gone. Basically, everybody who makes the ordinary citizens of the Marvel Universe feel comfortable going to sleep at night. They're gone. Yeah. What you got left, you got the Hulk, you got the X-Men, you got Spider-Man. You got Daredevil, who used to be comforting, but now he's the, the mean guy who, who belts people across the face with a metal shanked dowel. The Heroes for Hire, they were around? They weren't yet. No, they were. They were one of the books. They were one of the books that launched at the time. But Right, right. That's what I mean. Like, of the fill-in books, Heroes for Hire was one yeah, of them. Yeah, but, but Thunderbolts, I mean, at the time we're talking yeah. about this, this is before any of this stuff yeah, existed. Yeah. So, so I said, what if a team shows up and they're this, this cool, you know, daytime bright heroes team. But they're really Baron Zemo and the Masters of Evil, and they're doing this to, to win over the public. And Tom said, That's, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah. So I thought about it some more, and we went off to the, to the Marvel Summit. And while we were there, Tom and I got together with Bob Harris in the, in the bar after the first day. Tom said, Kurt's got this idea I think you should hear. So I, I told him the idea. And Bob, you know, literally, he paused for like 15 seconds. You could see him thinking, thinking, thinking. He said, yeah, let's do it. And that was... That was it. That was it. Uh, you know, at that time, we didn't have a name for the team. We didn't know who the lineup was going to be other than Baron Zemo was in it. Right. Um, and, and so I had to go and look at a list, you know, who, who has ever been in the Masters of Evil? Yeah. Who can I use? And the big problem we faced there was... There aren't a lot of women in the Masters of Evil, and what women there are are people like the Enchantress who wouldn't go for a scheme like this. And she was already swapped over anyway. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Titania, who was married to the Absorbing Man, and the Absorbing Man is really hard to disguise. And there was the female Yellow Jacket, but she right. was... Uh, She'd gone Rita off to the future. Rita Damara. That's it. <laughs> um, and I, I would have actually very much liked to use her, but she had gone off and spent years with the Guardians of the Galaxy and then come back and been killed in the near future in Avengers of the Crossing. And it was just so difficult to explain that I said, okay, I've got Moonstone. I've got, I'm going to make up this new character, Jolt. Um, and I need another female character, and the only available character that isn't, for one reason or another, wrong is Screaming Mimi, and she's got stupid powers, she's got a stupid name, and she was a lady wrestler. But we know almost nothing about her. Yeah. So I could modify her powers as part of the disguise. I could reveal that she was being a lady wrestler because it was it was it was kind of a defensive shell, and there's a different person underneath that. So I you know I built basically a whole new character to you know the only connection that songbird and screaming mimi have is they got sonic powers yeah different sonic powers but they're both sonic so i was able to to build the character from that but all of that came after we'd sold it so i guess the question is because you worked at marvel in sales you you were not you know ignorant to how things worked over there on some level Uh did you figure that the avengers would eventually be coming back did that factor into what the situation was at the time was either the Heroes Reborn books were going to sell real well and the deal was going to be renewed or they weren't going to sell real well. And by sell real well, I, I mean they had lofty sales goals for these. They were, they were spending a lot of money. Um, so they had to sell real well. Yeah. If they just sold well, very good, yeah, yeah. that wasn't enough. 
So I think that, that most people assumed that they'd be coming back, but it wasn't a sure thing. So actually, in that pitch you read, uh, there was probably a paragraph about, if the Avengers come back, I want to have Hawkeye become the leader of the, this team. If they don't come back, we'll figure out what we're doing. You might be right. I'd actually, I'd have to check. I think I still have a copy of it somewhere. So I was, you know, I thought you know, Thunderbolts was a good idea. And if the Avengers came back, then we could certainly play them against each other. And if the Avengers didn't come back, well, we still need a team. You know, the landscape is such that we can still do interesting things with them. So it didn't matter to the pitch. It mattered to what we did, yeah. how we were going to react, because ultimately the Avengers came back around Thunderbolts 5, and uh, by issue 12 we were doing a crossover. Right, I was around for that. But, you know, if they hadn't come back, we would have done other things. So when, when you find out that, the, that Heroes Reborn is not being renewed, that the Avengers are coming back, uh-huh. I mean, you, are you jockeying for that? gig are you jockeying for all the gigs you ended up getting two of them you got avengers and iron man i i jockeyed for iron man okay i i kept calling this was after mark gronwald had passed on yes because mark the only thing i ever did directly with mark as editor was the tales of the marvel universe that that, that introduced the thunderbolt oh okay yeah yeah that's right that's right uh, uh he edited that in plot stage. And by the time it was dialogue, uh, he was gone. But uh, I, know why I'm, I know why I'm thinking about Mark in association with this. Uh, when they were doing the second round of Amalgam books, yes. I kept calling up Mark and saying, hey, Kurt Busiek here, I want to do Iron Lantern. I, I got to do Iron Lantern. Let me do Iron Lantern. Let me do Iron Lantern. And, and, and uh, Mark uh, called me up and said, so I hear you want to do Iron Lantern. Why, why those two? And I, I, I laid out why the, why the parallels. They're, they're both, you know, ladies, men who have a romance with somebody who works at the same company they do. They work for a big uh, high-tech company, uh, and they spend uh, as much of their time fighting, you know, supervillains as they do. You know, they also spend time fighting people who are specific threats to that company. Um, they both have a technological weapon. They've both been replaced by by black men and teenagers. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, there's just there's a lot of parallels. They they both hang out with archers. Um, <laughs> you know, the archers have 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 romance romances with uh, with cool spy characters. Yeah. And uh, uh, so he said, okay, and I, I I did that. But I had made enough of an impression that I really like Iron Man. I want to do Iron Man. You know, I'd done Iron Man fill-ins in the past. I'd I'd basically been a pest about Iron Man. That when the Heroes Return book started up, I got a call from Tom Brevoort, and he said, "I want to talk to you about the you know they're bringing the books back." And I said, "I want Iron Man," and he said, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> <laughs> and and originally Tom was going to edit Iron Man. Right, and I was going to write that. it. And then they offered Avengers to George Perez. I didn't think I would ever be offered Avengers. You know, I, 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 Avengers, really? I, Avengers, you know, Iron Man was about as high as I thought I was ever going to get in this industry. After, after Marvel's, after the, the, the fanfare for Marvel's, you know, you know what I and got the awards, offered and the awards for untold tales of Spider-Man. You didn't think you were on a, you know, you know what I got offered after the <laughs> fantastic success of Marvel's. I can't wait. I got offered Ecto kid. Okay. And Night Thrasher. Ecto Kid was a Clive Barker, one of the yes. Barkerverse books? Okay. Yes. 
Ecto Kid and Night Thrasher were the only offers I got from Marvel. From DC, I got four issues of Valor. And, and Mark Wade had tried to get them to offer me Legion. And the editor had actually said, well, I really liked Marvel's, but Legion, you know, really wouldn't work with that tone. As if having written Marvel's, that was the only thing I could write. And, you know, basically what I did after, after Marvel's was I went off and did stuff at Image. I did the Spartan miniseries. I did the Velocity miniseries. I started doing something with Eric that never never got finished. I did Shadowhawk, and then I did Astro City. Untold and Tales is in there somewhere, isn't it? Untold Tales and Astro City started at about the okay. same time, so that was a parallel track. But I wasn't getting any any particularly interesting offers That's from amazing. Marvel and DC because because you know I mean they wanted me to do a sequel to Marvels, right? And that that kind of famously fell apart for for odd reasons. But I was going to, you know, make my own opportunities. At, sure. at, at one point, I had, I was pitching Marvel like four different books because in the wake of Marvel's, Mark Gronwald had said, you know, we'd be interested in what else you'd like to do. So aside from the offers coming in, I had an opportunity to pitch stuff to Mark. And I, I pitched him four books, and he liked them, and he sent, them, sent the, the pitches to editors for development. And I think two of them went to an editor who had no interest in working with me, and he never read them. One of the pitches went to uh, Brevoort, and we started developing that. And, and the success of that at Marvel can be measured in the fact that it eventually came out as the power company. Um, <laughs> Which is a DC book for people yes. listening, yeah. Yes, and one of the other books I, had, I pitched was called Avengers Hit Squad, where hit stood for heroes in training. And it was Hawkeye and a bunch of villains doing... So eventually you got to write that too. Sort of, sort, sort of, of yeah. yeah. But I had, you know, I used to be in sales. I had come up with uh, creative teams for all these books. I had come up with uh, marketing campaigns, uh, point of purchase stuff. And and what was one thing or, or another, you know, we had, Tom and I had reworked a couple of these ideas and they were back on Grooney's desk. And he just wasn't, either wasn't reading them or he had other stuff to do and Six months had passed, and I went, you know, you asked for these things, and I can't get you on the phone to say yes or no about them. And I've basically, I've cooked up this entire launch campaign that would work for each of these books, and and I'm sitting here basically begging you to take ownership of these ideas for free. Well, screw that. And I changed their names, and I showed them to Image, and that's what got me doing stuff at Image because they weren't interested in any of those new ideas. But they did say, oh, hey, a writer, an award-winning writer, <laughs> yeah. is actually interested in, in, in working here. Yeah. So most of the Image guys, everybody but Todd, said, yeah, why don't you do something for me? And I was doing work that way. And that led to Astro City. Right. The other track was... Marvel did the 99 cent book. Yeah. And one of them was going to be Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And they had they talked to Tom DeFalco about writing it, and he just turned it down. They talked to Roger Stern about writing it. He turned it down. So they were going to do a term you're very familiar with, I'm sure, a bake-off. Yes. But perhaps we should explain for the audience. No, I think actually I, I'm going I'm to refer people to the Tom Brevoort episode of this very podcast because he – explained exactly that and you yeah. said i said i'm not going to do a bake-off because <laughs> yeah. what i don't like about bake-offs i've done a couple in the past is 
I may come up with perfectly good ideas and some other guy comes up with perfectly good ideas and you're going to hire one of the two of us and the other one has just wasted all those ideas. Yeah. And it's just, well, you do get paid for, for the thing. And I said, yeah, but you know, getting a couple hundred dollars and then having all these story ideas that I'll never be able to do anything with, it's not worth it. I said, I will do you a proposal if, you know, you're the one doing the proposal. Yeah. If you don't like it, Great. Tell me you don't like it. Go on to your Bake Off. Right. Um, and Tom said, okay. So I, I, I wrote up a pitch, and he had neglected to inform me that the premise of Untold Tales of Spider-Man was Peter Parker during his college days. All I knew was it was Peter Parker during his early days. Right. So I went back, and I looked through the stuff, and the first point at which I said, okay, here's a, you know, here's a story to tell was he stopped wearing glasses. <laughs> And Aunt May never freaked out. You know, here's a guy who's worn glasses for years. Yeah. And his overprotective aunt just sort of went, yeah, okay, there's got to be a story there. If I came home and I wasn't wearing my glasses, my mother would be like, why aren't you wearing your glasses? And if I said, oh, my vision just suddenly got better, (laughs) she'd say, you're going to a doctor. So I figured that was a story, and I got around to that in, like, issue three or four or something. But I built the whole this is how we connect to Spider-Man continuity with that as my, my first real linchpin point. Right. And the powers that be liked my idea enough that they said, okay, well, we won't start in the college years. We'll, we'll start with the high school stuff because he seems to know what he's doing. Well, as somebody who didn't know all the connection points, it was a great comic on its own. That was the, that was, yeah. I mean, I like the continuity connections, but the point was, Every issue had to be a complete story. I mean, even if it had subplots that continued, there had to be a resolution in 20 pages. And it had to be perfectly clear. So if I'm going to explain that this is happening while Dr. Octopus is terrorizing the Southwest on a crime spree, you know, I have to say that in the book. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, you guys remember back in Spider-Man 11. Right. Because they don't. You know, that was 40, 50 years ago. So anytime we connected to what was going on. We'd make it a part of the story so you could read it completely on your own and completely on its own, and the story would make sense. Oh, so the fact that it connects is not the point of the series. Right. The fact that it connects is the point of the writer being insane. Sure. But uh, the, the, you know, the, the stories had to stand by themselves even if they had connections. I want to track back to something. You, you talked about being in the sales department. Yeah. I spoke to Jim Kruger uh-huh. a while back, and I remember because he was he was in the ad department when I was at Marvel, uh-huh. and there was a lot of resistance in editorial to him pitching. Yes, the idea being that I didn't know that about Jim, but yes, I, I'm familiar with that. Okay, that's what I want to talk. <laughs> about. I want I want to I want to get your if it was the same for you, where because for him the resistance was oh, he's going to use the advertising department to promote his own books, uh, and then he's also from the Midwest. So everybody thought he was too nice. It's like uh-huh. a Midwestern thing. <laughs> so what was the resistance? Because I know Peter David also was in the sales yeah. team. And I, I feel like he's talked about yeah, Peter, that as well. Peter was there before me. Uh, basically, I replaced the guy who replaced Peter. Okay. There was a lot of strain at the time between Marvel Editorial and sales and promotion 
um, basically, you know, part of it was that the sales and promo guys kept going to the editors and saying, you got to tell us what's happening so that we can sell the books. And the editors often didn't know what was happening because they were doing the books by the seat of their pants and they didn't have a plot in yet. And they didn't figure they needed a plot in yet because as long as they made the print deadline, yeah. who gave a crap about the catalog? You know, but the time that we started doing this, uh, direct sales catalog was a, was a relatively recent thing. And so they saw it as this unwelcome intrusion. And also there were times when Carol Kalish was the head of the direct sales department and she'd say, we need to do this, this, and this for these sales reasons. And so editorial felt like, oh, we're being pushed around. And so, so there was some resentment and that resentment played out in the, well, we can't, you know, we can't kick Carol Kalish in the teeth. But this Peter David guy, yeah, we can kick him in the teeth. This Busick guy, yeah, Fabian Nicieza, what the hell? You know, we can, we can take out our irritation with that part of the company on these guys who are, are pitching comics. Yeah. So it was, it was difficult for anybody, you know, to, to, to break in coming out of sales or promotion. And yet the three names you just mentioned broke through and you, I'm not Peter saying and... that the editors who didn't want us pitching were smart. <laughs> Fair it was enough. just it was it was a it was an institutional thing. Yeah, the the you know that that uh, again obviously it hadn't changed, right? Uh, you know, into the late nineties, right? Where if you were in another department, you were just in another department. Just lines were drawn. Yeah, yeah, and there was there was even sometimes a sensibility that if you worked in uh, another department, then that was what you were. Yeah, and so you couldn't be a writer, you couldn't be an artist. A guy walked in off the street. And he had a portfolio, and the portfolio was good. Well, he could be an yes. artist because you don't know that that guy is, you know, sweeping up the back of the store at Kinko's. Right. If they knew he was sweeping up the back of the store at Kinko's, they go, "He's a janitor." But if he was doing, he can't be an if artist. If he was doing cover setups in the bullpen, he's a bullpenner. Right. And that's what he does. Right. Right. And, or and this, she. This 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 happened a lot with the uh, Ramitas Raiders, the guys who yeah. did the art corrections. They'd show their samples around to the editors. And the editors would give them constructive tips on this is what you need to fix. This is what you need to work on. This is because what they saw when the guy came in was they saw this is an apprentice. Yeah. My job is to train him. Then that same guy would take those same samples and he'd go uptown and he'd go to D.C. And D.C. editors would look at the work and they go, here, have a job. <laughs> and I think more guys, I mean, Kevin McGuire broke in at D.C. He was a Ramitas Raider. Right. James Fry, I think, did his, you know, he did a bunch of work for DC coming out of the Ramitas Raider. He did a little stuff for Marvel, too. And there are others, uh, I think more inkers made it from the Ramitas Raider program to working at Marvel than pencilers. Because the pencilers, they came in with their samples, and the editors had this preconception that that this guy's a this guy's a beginner. My job is not to hire him. My job is to guide him. Yeah. And people who didn't know that context would just look at it and go, "This is perfectly professional comic books. Here, <laughs> have money." <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of guys. I mean, when I when I was there, the Raiders were gone. It was pretty much one guy left, mm-hmm. uh, Ponscom, uh-huh. you may or may not have known, but uh, great inker. And I I always wondered why he stuck around, like why he didn't go to do freelance inking. Uh, I guess. Well, if there was only one of him left, he was probably being kept pretty busy. He was pretty busy, yeah. I mean, when the uh, when the Ramitas Raider program was going in in full flower, as it were, there were time limits, so you you only could be a Raider for so long. 
so you had you were rotating a lot of guys through right. because uh you know and i think when Ponscom was was the last guy left he was basically assistant art director or something and his job yeah. was you know it was a job it wasn't a yeah, training yeah. position it yeah, wasn't no, it was him and darren Auk were sort of yeah the, it, our corrections team yeah yeah it had become a, a, a formal gig rather than a training gig so we're gonna jump ahead now ah! we're gonna talk about the avengers in a rearview mirror way okay so you were on Avengers, it was two and a half years, three years? Almost five. Almost five. All right. Look, I, I, left I, and I forgot what happened. I did Avengers up through 56. So that's, right. that's five years would have been 60 issues. So I, I was four short and there were like, there were three issues that Jerry Ordway wrote rather right. than me. That's right. But then again, I did a bunch of double-sized issues and I did Avengers forever. So I, and I some think. Annuals. Huh? Didn't you write the, the, the Avengers Squadron Supreme Annual? Was that not you? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was, that was me and uh, Len Kaminsky right. together. Uh, so did you do everything you wanted to do with the Avengers? No. Um, I don't think I'd ever... I think I did everything I needed to do with the Avengers. Okay. <laughs> I had plenty more story ideas. I mean, I, I had this stuff going on with the Vision developing his own, you know, getting a... He was going to be working for this construction company that was going to be doing high-tech construction. He was going to have a supporting cast there. Um, and the Scarlet Witch was going to leave the team to sort of go find herself and develop her own supporting cast. And, and, and it was going to lead us into new stories along the way. Um, I had an idea for a whole new Zodiac team, uh, collector story. I had a lot of stuff that I, that I wanted to do. But most of it was a continuation of stuff I'd already been doing. It was, it was more along these lines. And it was pretty clear that Marvel was not interested in more along these lines, that they wanted things to be different. And the point at which Ultimate started... And there were some people at Marvel who were basically promoting it as saying, this is the modern cool Avengers. Yeah. And I'm there going, so I'm the chopped liver Avengers? <laughs> that, I, you know, it was, it was clear that the time had come for me to go on to other things and somebody else could come on and be the new cool guy. You know, I, I, I was never going to be the new guy on Avengers right. again. Jeff Johns, he could maybe be the new cool guy. Brian, Brian Bendis certainly became the new cool he guy. Did, yes. But just like Ultimate X-Men came along, and then when Grant Morrison took over X-Men, he was the new cool guy on X-Men. Yeah. So you had two cool X-Books. Right. With Avengers, if I left and someone else came on, maybe Ultimates and Avengers are both cool. But as long as I'm there, I'm the old guard. So and, that actually tracks to something else I wanted to talk about, and I talked to Tom a little bit about this. When you were writing Avengers and Iron Man, and Mark Wade was back on Captain America... And FF was always sort of squirrely in, in the Heroes Reborn period. Uh, but for me as a reader, it felt like there was, a, there was sort of a sea change in the tone and the types of superhero stories that were being written, mm -hmm. uh, particularly from you and Mark. Did you have that sense? Did you think you were making a sea change? Did you think that within five years, everything was going to shift again? <laughs> and and all, the, all the groundwork you guys had done totally would, would be not wiped off the board but kind of wiped off the board um you know wiped off the board is a pretty good uh, <laughs> pretty good thing no i i um it's weird i look back on that time and you look at it from the outside and you go oh you know mark and kurt were among the the main writers at marvel at the time they were the ones that you know driving the bus they were the ones making things happen it didn't feel like that it felt like i was you know i was there i was doing my book 
you know, my two books, yeah. whatever. And everyone else was doing their thing. And it didn't feel like I was in charge of anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, I at had the made time, it. Avengers wasn't a flagship book. Um, X-Men was the flagship book. Yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of changing. Oh, and Dan Jurgens was on Thor. Yeah, but Captain well, America also. Um, while I was while I was writing Avengers, you know, it was it was it was in Marvel's top five. Yeah, no, was, we we did well with uh, that one. But I felt like I'm doing comics the way I want to do comics, but they're not. It's not necessarily some sort of hallmark of the way Marvel wants to do comics. It was the way Tom wanted to do comics. It was the way George wanted to do comics. Sure. But I would run into things like when I started on Iron Man. I said, one of the things I want is I want the Black Widow. I want to explore the relationship between Tony and the Black Widow. I want to set up the Black Widow in this whole new role in the Marvel Universe. And I was told, sure, you can do that. And and while I was plotting the first story that she appeared in, I was told, uh, you got to share the Black Widow with Daredevil because there's a new writer on Daredevil and he wants to do stuff with the Black Widow. And the Black Widow's, you know, a Daredevil character. I said, uh, the Black Widow's an Iron Man character, man. You, you, you want to go look? Um, that was the Marvel Knights stuff, right? Uh, it must have been. No, it was just before the Marvel oh, was Knights. It? Okay. It, was, it was Joe Kelly was doing stuff with, okay. with, with that. Um, and then the word came down that, no, no, the Black Widow was a Daredevil character. And uh, if I wanted to use her, I had to clear it with the Daredevil office. And so it was just like, you know, I walked in the door and I made a couple of requests and and now I'm being told those requests. Yeah, sorry, forget about it. That does not make you feel like you're you're in charge. That doesn't make you feel like uh-huh. you have any clout whatsoever. So, you know, Mark was telling the kind of stories he was telling in Captain America because they're the kind of stories Mark wanted to tell. I was telling these stories in Avengers and Iron Man because those are the kind of stories I was. I want. I don't think we had any sense, or anyone at Marvel had any sense that we were, you know, raising the the banner for this is how comics are done now and marching off into the field and saying, (laughs) come on, boys, follow me. And I don't think we would have wanted to do that. I mean, my feeling about, I, 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 uh, I feel like every now and then somebody comes along in comics like a Frank Miller or an Alan Moore or Chris Claremont before that. And they start doing comics their way and it's a success. And everybody goes, look, 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 new way to do comics. And they start imitating. Yeah. And I think that's the dumbest thing in the world. I think I, I, I think that you know the best the pop, the proper reaction to that is look 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 they're doing comics their way that means I can do comics my way go off in my own direction so when I was doing Marvel's Astro City Until Tales all the stuff I was doing I wasn't hoping that people would line up behind me I was hoping people were saying he's doing his own thing I'm going to do my own thing but it just happened that. Me and Mark and Carl Kiesel uh, and, a, and a couple of other guys were doing this particular kind of upbeat, positive, energetic uh, superhero yeah. comics, and it was it was a pendulum swing after the after so long with the grim and gritty. That's what Brevoort said. He said the same thing. And and it it felt like you know it felt like from the outside that this is a new movement. Yeah. From the inside, it was just no. I'm I'm sitting in the room over the garage and I'm I'm writing stories and I'm not. Yeah, as a reader, it felt good because it was post Death of Superman, post Nightfall, mm-hmm. post Onslaught, certainly, mm-hmm. post a really weird run of Avengers before they went <laughs> away. So it it really felt like, and because the sales were going up, I guess on some level you think that well maybe this is will tell people that this is a, a way to do superhero comics that's sustainable. But, yeah, and, and I mean, there were 
probably people who were thinking that way, yeah. but it didn't filter. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't give me any sense that, oh, I have some sort of clout in this industry. Right. You know, I had gotten the job because George Perez asked for me. Um, That's I mean, flattering. Yeah, that is flattering. Yeah. That is, but it, it, it also tells you that the editor didn't think it. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I wrote Superman. For, and it wasn't Brevoort at first. Right? No, no, Credit no. Originally, the plan was that uh, Bobby Chase was going to edit Avengers and Tom was going to edit Iron Man. Right. And, then there was a- and George and I were talking it over and we realized we have so much Marvel stuff to do with Avengers. We need somebody who can backstop us on continuity and so we made the suggestion what if we swapped them right and i guess bob harris saw the the wisdom in that because bobby did iron man and she did a very good job on iron man and tom did avengers and geez look what he did yeah so that seems like it was a pretty decent choice in terms of things that you didn't get to do that you would have done i remember at the end of the avengers squadron supreme annual you wanted haywire to stick around I wanted Haywire to stick around, not for any major plan of mine, okay. but because at that point, Len Kaminsky was already working on a Squadron Supreme Brave New World special. Yes. And he wanted to go back to the kind of Justice League analog version. So he was going to basically have the ship crash when they got back to their own world and all the characters that didn't fit the pattern he wanted to use, we're going to be dead. And I said, that seems like a crappy thing to do to Haywire. I mean, hey, Haywire, I mean, it's a crappy thing to do to any of the characters, but Haywire was specifically was in mourning over his dead girlfriend, Inertia, I think her name was, and he clearly had issues that needed to be explored. And just killing him off to basically clean the stage, I said, let's just have him not go. Because then you don't have to kill him, and maybe somebody else can do something with him. And in the end, Steve Englehart did something with him in Celestial Quest, Celestial oh. Quest, Avengers Celestial Quest, and and he ended up dying. But he ended up <laughs> dying as a result of doing something about his mourning his dead girlfriend and trying to grapple with that, and and he ended up dealing with the personification of death, you know, that Thanos is in love with, and something right. like that. So his death came out of his character, out of his own character issues, instead of being a, oh, I don't want him on this right, stage, let's get rid of him. So it was a death that, that was a story about him rather than a, you know, it's, it's why when I started Thunderbolts, I wanted to use Baron Zemo. But the last time we'd seen Baron Zemo, he was married to the Baroness Zemo, who was a horrible, horrible character and who made Zemo look like a, an, an emasculated wimp. And, you know, he'd sit around and cry and I said, I don't want to have anything to do with her. So I established when we did the, the origin of the Thunderbolts annual, I said, she, she died in prison. And that was a re- way to say she's off the stage. Right. But I didn't show you how she died. I didn't show you her body. Anybody can come up at any point and say, oh, no, she didn't. She faked it or they lied. She escaped. She's been living in the sewers for the last two years. Whenever I wanted to get rid of characters who were uncomfortably on stage like um uh, magdalene and the and the second swordsman yeah they were living in a tony stark owned house near central park which made me go anytime there's a crisis in the city they're going to show up because they got nothing to do 
And they're right there. They're like, you know, quarter mile away from Avengers Mansion. I got to get rid of them. Right. So that's why I had them go with the Squadron Supreme off to explore the multiverse. The idea was if they're off in the multiverse, any writer who's interested in them can say, well, they went to this universe and they got involved in a story and they contacted the Avengers and they said, dude, come to Archon's world. We're, we're, we're having a big war. You know, you can do something with them if they're in a dynamic situation. That was my way of saying, I don't want them on my stage, but I want to put them somewhere that, where anybody who wants to use them can pick them up in a dynamic position. Sure. It's like uh, I thought that the Nuclon character, not Nucle, Nuclo, um, Nuclo was... Uh, I vaguely remember the name. He was Nuclo the nuclear nemesis, and he turned out to be the child of the wizard and Miss America, and at one time was thought to be the sibling of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Okay. And Mark Grunewald used him by saying he was kind of a half-wit, but he was in comfortable surroundings, and he was working as the Avengers gardener. And I thought, oh, my God, get rid of him. You know, put him somewhere where you can find out that things have been going on with him, where he can be missing for six months and then show up as a, as a villain or a duper or, or, or something useful. Rather than, he's the Avengers gardener, so if he ever goes missing, they're going to notice right away. And you can't get any traction in terms of getting him into another story. I, I, I like sending characters off into, like I said, into a dynamic situation where you can do something with them. You're putting them in a green room to come out on stage later. Right, right. In any shape that the, that the creators want. And let's face it, nobody wanted to use Magdalene of the Swordsman since. And that's not because I did bad things to them. They're available for anybody who wants to use them, but nobody wanted to. Somebody did want to use Haywire, and, and he used Haywire and got a story out of it. Nobody's ever wanted to use the Baroness Zemo, and I don't blame them. But if somebody wanted to, she's there to be used. Very briefly, talk about, I want to talk about Avengers Forever, uh, just because that was a big project. Uh-huh. But you don't often talk about... And I'm, I'm going to be very vague about it in case you don't. You don't talk about what it was supposed to be before it was Avengers Forever. Mm -hmm. Is that because it's something that you at some point want to use, perhaps in Astro City or elsewhere? Is it one of those ideas that... It, yeah, actually, I already have taken the uh, outline that started when, when I first created it. It was called Avengers Stalag America, and then it was Avengers World in Chains. And I found, figured out a way to do it with creator-owned characters. And so I've already worked out how to do that. And one of the reasons I don't talk about it is because, yeah, I, I, I want to, you know, it's a story I want to tell. It's a story structure I want to use, but I'd rather tell it yeah, yeah. Than, than, you know, talk about it on the internet. No, I figured as much because the only thing I saw was one of those comic book legends revealed. Mm -hmm. And it's all very, you know, not a lot of information. And I know a lot of the information because I was there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I specifically remember a lunch. I can't remember the name of the restaurant, some Italian restaurant. It was you, Tom, Carlos, who was in town, uh -huh. myself, and Chris Claremont. Uh -huh. And it got to a point where you guys were going on and on about, I don't even know what, <laughs> where Carlos and I were drawing on sugar packets because we had nothing to do. <laughs> and you guys were just going. And I think yeah. at that point is when it was transitioning to Avengers Forever, possibly. I don't, I don't, uh, no, no, no. No, it wasn't, right? No, no. Carlos came, they flew me to New York. They flew Carlos to New York. We worked out outline stuff for World in Chains. Yes. Carlos, Carlos was doing sketches. I was watching over his shoulder. Yep. 
Then we went back home, and <laughs> and then I found out about Mutant X, and it was like, no. Which still does it. It still makes you could still run them concurrently. But but they were two series about alternate universes. Uh, well, not only that, but alternate universes in which a character from our universe is thrown into the alternate universe and has to figure out how to make his way through this altered landscape where friends and foes have different. You know, it was it wasn't the same story, but it was the same conceit. If it's any consolation, uh, around that time I had drawn the last issue of What If, which was uh-huh. a a Secret Wars storyline where if the heroes never came back, mm-hmm. and Jay Ferber and I tried to pitch a sequel to that, and one of the reasons it didn't go is because it would be another alternate universe book, uh-huh. and there was apparently a flood of them. So <laughs> you were not the only casualty, maybe well, the greater casualty. Well, in our case, it wasn't that, that, you know, Marvel said we couldn't do it. It was that I called up Bob Harris and said, Bob, we can't do this. You're, right. you're launching a book with the same premise two months earlier than ours. We'd be the second guys in the room with the same idea. So it was basically me and Tom and Carlos decided we cannot do this story. We have to come up with another story. And Carlos has to start drawing on like Wednesday. So <laughs> we'd better do it. You know, we better come up with an idea fast. Yeah, that book was a a bit on the fly. That was one of the things I loved about it. The basic story idea was one that I I had been planning to to do as a running subplot in Avengers, and eventually it would it would take over the main plot, kind of like my version of the Celestial Madonna saga. And when we needed a a storyline in a hurry. I said, well, we could take this and make it its own series. And uh, I talked to George, and I said, we were going to do this, but if I take this out and do it as a special series, and George said, yeah, go ahead. And that's another case of an artist wanting to work with you. Yes. Carlos wanted to work with you. He wanted to do an Avengers project with you. Yes, yes. And and then later, when my run on Superman happened, because they wanted Carlos to do Superman, and Carlos said he'd do it if I wrote it. And, and I was... <laughs> I was, you know, talking with the editor and talking with Carlos and working out ideas. And at one point, I just, I called Matt Idelson and I said, here's the thing, Matt. No one's offered me the job yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Carlos has said he wants me to do it. And you asked me what I want to do in it. And it all seems like I'm doing it. But nobody who has a DC emblem on their business card has said, Kurt, you want to be the writer on Superman? And Bob went, oh, hey, Kurt, you want to be the writer on Superman? But yeah, I, I, have, I have gotten a, a number of very nice career stage moments uh, from the fact that you know, there are artists out there who like working with me and want to work with me. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Also during Avengers Forever is the first experience I had working with you of you being sick. <laughs> and it affecting your ability to work because Roger Stern came on and, and was scripting, I believe, right? Or was he plotting? No, no. He, Roger, Roger was co-plotting. What we'd right. do is Roger and I would talk through the issue and Roger would do a lot of the, the actual research. Um, and then he would, he would write up an outline. I'd mess with the outline. He'd write up a plot and then I'd rework it because Roger tends to pace a story very evenly and I wanted splash page, big moment, so forth. So I'd, I'd, I'd squeeze a bunch of pages together into a, a shorter sequence so that we could turn the page and have a big moment, things like that. So Roger and I were really, you know, he was doing the heavy lifting and I was doing the kind of, you know, puppeteering and, and tweaking. Right. And then that would go to Carlos. He'd draw it and I'd do the dialogue. So 
you've been you've been super open and in, in like Astro City letters pages and things about your various ailments and how mm-hmm. they've slowed you slowed you down. The the one that is most often talked about is mercury poisoning. Yeah. What what is that? How does that <laughs> manifest? What does it do to you? Mercury poisoning. Mercury is the most toxic non-radioactive substance on earth. Right, it's in thermometers. It's in thermometers, it's in children's shoes. You know, all those all those light-up shoes have mercury okay. switches. Right. That that basically by compressing them, you're compressing mercury and that creates the electrical contact that makes the shoes light up. All right. They're in dental fillings. That a silver amalgam dental filling is 51% mercury. Okay. Great um, and, place to put it. And the the amount of the amount of mercury in a single dental filling is enough to render a five-acre lake unfishable. Smart. This is very toxic stuff. Yeah. There, you know, there's a long history with this. The reason that the American Dental Association exists is because their predecessor, the American College of Dental Surgeons, fell apart in like 1840 or something like that over an argument of whether mercury fillings were dangerous or not. So the American Dental Association doesn't want to address the question at all because if it's ever decided that mercury fillings are bad for you, they have liability going back 150 years. Well, more now. And, uh, I mean, I could tell you stuff about... I could tell you crackpot stuff about about mercury and and the people who say it's bad and the people who don't say it's bad, but suffice it to say... What does it do? It's a heavy metals poison. Yeah. So it's heavy metal, so it causes heavy metal poisoning. Heavy metal poisoning basically fucks up your immune system. Uh, the mercury settles in the, the deep tissues, and your, your ability to fight off disease, your ability to function is just compromised. Uh, so that was what I was dealing with. I, I just... I was just getting slower and slower and slower as a writer and days, weeks would go by. Is it like your brain is slower? You're physically moving slower? All of it? My brain was certainly moving slower and I was just felt like I was in this constant mental fog. And there were some days when, you know, I could get out of bed, but I couldn't stand up for very long. Right. I just felt like shit. And, you know, the worst part about it was what I felt was I felt lazy and stupid. I didn't feel like I am ill. I have these clear symptoms of illness. I had these symptoms that, that, you know, because of the controversy over mercury, it's hard to diagnose. It's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to recognize. It took years before somebody said, you know, this could be metals poisoning. And then the tests that you do for metals poisoning aren't recognized by the AMA as accurate tests because basically the mercury settles into your, your tissues and it won't, you know, if, if you, uh, the various tests that the AMA recognizes will tell you if you've been exposed to mercury within the last month. But if you've been exposed to mercury and it's still in your system from six years ago, they won't turn it up. The way you have to do that is you have to take some sort of chemical agent that'll stir up the mercury and then you can be tested for the mercury. But then because you've stirred it up, you don't have a baseline. I don't, I don't really know what the argument is, but basically they say that's not a valid test. So, so it's, it's, it's very difficult to get a, uh, a firm diagnosis. 
And is the mercury poisoning the thing that has then since caused gallbladder stuff, sinus stuff, all that, or is that, or is that just your body saying, "Yeah, we're gonna screw, we're gonna mess with you here too"? Um, Are you just falling apart? What's happening, Kurt? The best guess is it's all a result of the mercury poisoning. Okay. I can't say that for sure because, you know, people have gallbladder problems sure. without having mercury poisoning. Uh, people have other issues, you know, and and they could come from the fact that my system was compromised by the mercury or they could come from something else. You know, you could even make an argument that I never had mercury poisoning, that it was something else all along. And, and that treating it as mercury poisoning managed to ameliorate the situation enough that, you know, I got healthier for a while and I got sick for a while and I got, you know, and then and, and it wasn't until the gallbladder issue started becoming a serious issue that they started getting at what's really wrong. It, it's, it's just impossible to tell. The way I look at it because of, you know, the narrative I went through is mercury poisoning screwed up my immune system. Other things could have been caused by a screwed up immune system. So uh, that's how it feels to me. But if, you know... Uh, super alien visiting doctors, star patch, you know, crouch back mother, what's her name? And, and all from Vampirella came by and said, a great callback to a pre-recording conversation. Right, right. Um, so I should say that differently. No, that's uh, you great. know, if, if I was told that it's actually a, a completely different sequence of events, I can't say no, no, that's wrong. All I can say is, well, does this give us, you know, more of a, a, uh, an angle on from which to fix it. And then why, what led to the decision to be as open about it as you've been, as opposed to just sort of going off the table for a while, taking care of it and then coming back and saying like, here's a new thing. Well, part of it is cause it, we can't, you know, it's, if, if it's not a push button thing, you can't just go away and take care of it and then come back. Right. For one thing, you know, I'd lose my house cause I got to <laughs> keep working. I got to make money. But the other thing is, I I'm a I'm a I'm a blabbermouth. I like talking to people, and if if the, you know, if I'm working on books and the books aren't coming out on time, or they're going on hiatus, or I'm bringing in Roger or somebody to help me on them, then I don't I don't want people to go, yeah, Kurt can't get his work done because he's a lazy motherfucker. Right. I want to say, look, there's a reason this stuff isn't getting done. If we could do it, we'd do it, but I can't. So that's, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want it to be a mystery. Uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, it, it's not a secret identity thing. Uh, it's just, it's just, Hey, you know, Roger Stern's going to be co-writing Iron Man cause I'm sick. Why not say that? That somebody would be like, well, you, you know, showing your weaknesses or what everybody's got some, yeah. everybody's pre- presenting themselves in different ways. So it's, Right. Well, I'm, I, I don't see a narrative with, hey, Roger Strand's co-writing Iron Man because I am strong. Right. You know, obviously something went wrong. Well, I mean, you could have come up with like, Roger Strand is co-writing Iron Man because I'm going to focus on Astro City. Yeah, but Astro City wasn't coming out either. But, you know, I mean, there's, you know, and then you say, yeah. and it's not coming out because I really want it to be perfect. There's a lot of ways you can spin an yeah, absence. But, but, but most of them end up with... You know, this guy's a lazy bum, or this guy's a prima donna, or this guy's whatever. It's just easier to say, hey, you know, I'm sick. I want to do this stuff, but there are are days that I I don't get out of my bathrobe because I'm wandering out. You know, and that was years ago. Yeah. But uh, things are, are, 
not perfect now, but they're considerably better than they used to be. That's good. And uh, hopefully we'll keep going in the right direction and things will, things will get better. But uh, I don't know. I don't want to make up fake reasons when the real reasons are pretty understandable. Let's talk about doing the stuff. Doing the stuff. Writing. I'm going to quote you. You said recently on the internet, uh, there's a big difference between the kind of book I read and the kind of book I'd like to write. My casual reading tastes lean towards genre and structured plotting. My want to do that tastes lean more literary and organic. So I thought that was really interesting Uh because I find that the things I like, I like to read are the sort of things I would want to write as well in, in the, in the respect of I try when I'm approaching a story, I'm trying to recreate on some level, I'm trying to recreate for whatever the audience is, the feeling I got from similar stories. Mm-hmm. Maybe I misread the quote differently. I'm not yeah. sure, but it certainly seems like Astro city is the kinds of stories you want to be writing. Well, it's certainly some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when you talk about like uh, things being genre and structured plotting, like where's where's the distinction? What are you reading that you don't write in that capacity? Well, or I vice mean, versa. I would say that Astro City leans literary and experimental, at least if you know. Uh, but I like you know I like reading. I mean, you've always you've always liked Savage Dragon. You were an early proponent of that book. Yeah, which is very much. But I was band. more thinking of of prose. Right. But yeah, I mean, I like Savage Dragon. Savage Dragon's straight straightforward adventure book. Yeah. I always enjoyed reading, you know, Chuck Dixon's Nightwing and Robin. We could but, talk. We could talk prose. I won't know half but, of what you're but talking in, about. In but. Pro, you know, I was a big fan of Dick Francis when he was writing. I still read the the books his son writes that are in the sort of same tradition. I love Lawrence Block's writing, but uh, you know, I love reading his Bernie Rodenbarn books, which are cut sort of lighthearted comedy caper books. And then he writes the Matt Scudder books, which are these you know, deep, uh, they're still kind of relatively straightforward mystery plots used as a, a structure on which to hang observations about life in New York and humanity. And, you know, they're more literary than the comedy crime stuff in, in that degree. I like reading Michael Connolly. I like reading John Sanford. I like reading Jim Butcher. Uh, but, you know, they're writing, here's a detective story. It's a good detective story. It's a well-written detective story. But it's, it's you know, I'm writing a thriller that'll take you, you know, four or five hours to read it, and you'll have a good time reading it. But what I, you know, I don't mean to knock what they're doing at all. If I, you know, I pay money to read their books in hardcover. Yeah. I, I think that's the, the best compliment I can give it. But there's a big difference between what I want to spend five hours with reading for fun and what I would want to spend, say, 10 months on writing every day. You know, if I want to write a story, I want it to interest me for the whole time I'm writing the story. And something that's just a a straightforward adventure story, I want more than that. I want to be engaged with more than that. I feel like I'm not doing enough if that's all I'm, I'm writing. So the kind of thing I will read and enjoy reading 
and the kind of thing that I, I am, am, am drawn to writing. I mean, the kind of thing that, that I'm drawn to writing, I like reading that too sure. when I can find it. Yeah, that was um, the next part of your quote was, uh, or the next part of, of what you had said was, and yet when I find the book, that's the thing I wish I could write. It's a joy to be treasured and wallowed in. Yeah. Yeah. So something like um, Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Oh, man, I love that. I, you know, I, I would, I would, I mean, I don't want to write specifically that because that's her particular sure. obsessions and world building. Um, but I'd like to write something that's got that much texture and that much meat in terms of, of theme and character and so forth. You know, uh, Joanne Harris's, some of her short stories, her books like Chocolat, these are, these are dynamite books that have a lot of, of texture and, and depth to them. So when I, when I run across a book like that, when I find a book that has that kind of pleasure to it, then I, you know, I don't want to just read it. I want to read it three, four times. I want to, I want to wallow in it. Right. Right. So, you know, I, I have a perfectly good time watching NCIS. Right. Yeah. This isn't a question of any judgment. NCIS is, is, is not a terribly ambitious show. (laughs) Right. You know, they deliver the goods. They're good at delivering the goods. They're not trying to be terribly experimental well, with goods they're delivering. Being transcendent is is not easy to do in any yeah. in any genre or format. So when you find that thing that hits your right note, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I'm doing whenever I'm working on a story and here we're talking about, you know, novel outlines and things that I, I haven't been able to get into into print yet. <laughs> I want to mess with it. I want to find more depth in it, more texture, more layers to the point where I, I, at one point I came up with an idea. It started out as an idea for a comic book that I talked about doing it at Marvel. That was just this, this uh, fun adventure romp because I've been reading this 1930s screwball fantasy stuff, early Robert Block when he was doing funny stuff and things like that. And I'd come up with this idea, you know, there were all these characters, they were always smoking and drinking and they were drunk all the time and saving the world from, from demonic invasions that had this humorous side. And I want to do something like that. But the more I messed with it, the more I couldn't get around the fact that the main character was an alcoholic and I had to address the fact that he was an alcoholic and there were issues connected with that. And the story got a lot more serious. And this form that the story exists in now doesn't have any of the tone of those early Robert <laughs> Block stories uh, because what was inspired by that stuff, I I had to keep, you know, my brain had to keep messing with it until it... it until there was enough there to keep me interested on more than just a surface level. So I can, I can have lots of fun with a story that is, is largely just a surface romp, but I don't, I don't have the same experience when I'm writing the material because writing it takes a lot more work and takes a lot more time and takes a lot more focus. And if I'm going to spend that work and time and focus on something, I want it to be something more than, you know, a meringue. Now, is there is there is there any pleasure in the words themselves? 
in taking something that would be a simplistic genre piece, a meringue, <laughs> but using a particular phrasing or method of writing it where it, it, it transcends that way in the language versus the 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 underdrawing to use a drawing term that I would like in, in constructing a figure uh-huh. uh, instead of concerning maybe with, with all the everything looking a certain way construction wise uh, maybe just the brush stroke is, um, is where the is where the uh, there probably is for some writers yeah I don't think my wordsmithing is particularly brilliant I think that what's good about my writing such as it is is the ideas my understanding of the character you know if if my my character dialogue may not be you know the best character dialogue anyone's ever written i'm not i'm not you know in competition for that but the things i'm doing with the character are hopefully interesting and illuminating enough that you're interested even if the words themselves are are reasonably straightforward, the kind of story, the kind of drama, the kind of issues they're bringing up, that's what's that's that's what interests. That's that's what compels. So, the idea of doing something that maybe didn't have that kind of character depth, but had a lot of fun surface filigree. Yeah, I think there are writers who could do that really well, but I'm probably not one of them. Okay. That's fair. I mean, I've had fun with that sort of thing here and there. Like, um, well, here we are going back to Untold Tales of Spider-Man. <laughs> I got to write an issue where the original X-Men showed up. And I love the original X-Men. They're, the, they're awesome. And I made sure there was a scene in the Coffee Gogo or whatever the, the, the name of the Greenwich Village coffee house was that they, they used to go to. Because Bobby had a sort of a girlfriend there who was a smart mouth waitress. And it was, I mean, the story was very, very straightforward. But getting to write beast dialogue that was playing with the language the way that beast dialogue back then played the, the, with, the, with the language. Getting to write Bobby's girlfriend Zelda like I was writing a Vera Ellen character from, from a, you know, a 1944 musical. I was having a wonderful time writing that stuff. You know, I was, I was... I was drawing on the kind of dialogue Milt Kniff would write or that you'd get, again, from a classic movie. You know, I had, I had Iceman say that, uh, you know, hey, my pal Warren's lumpy with loot. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, was, it, it was fun. There's a joy in that. I, 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 around that time, I wrote an Elvira story for Claypool Comics where, you know, I was very, very stupid because it was a two-part story and in the first part, when I was dialoguing the first part, there was this character that the, the artist Neil Vokes had drawn to look like a kind of like a Dr. Seuss character. So I named him Dr. Zeus, X-E-U-S, and had him talk in that kind of Dr. Seuss poetic rhythm. Yeah. And I forgot that in the second part of the story, which Neil was drawing at that time, there was a lengthy flashback sequence narrated by this guy. So then I got the second part into dialogue, and I had to write like, you know, seven, seven pages of exposition-heavy flashback as if I was Dr. Seuss. And that was hard, but it was, you know, there was a pride in being able to make it work. And, and 
one of my favorite lines I've ever written, I, I got to put in there where, where I got to have this guy explain that as John Lord Acton once said quite acutely, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And it just, it did what the story needed. It's funny and it's important. Here's a who. And so there's a, there's, there's pride in that. But at the same time, that issue of X-Men, I mean, that issue of Until Tales of Spider-Man, that issue of Elvira. Uh, Anomalies. Nobody read them and thought, ooh, look at the wonderful use of language. I don't know they read them and did. said, ah, that was fun. But, you know, something like Marvel's or Astro City or Superman's Secret Identity or Superstar or Aerosmith, you know, these are books that I've done that people say, this is, this is worth remembering. This is, this is something that's got some, some texture, some meat, some, well, some, some depth of that's, to that's, it. You know, the audience for, for that, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody else is going to want something else. You know, I don't know why it flashed in my mind, but the movie Harvey flashed into my mind. Uh huh. Where have you the seen? Name is Dowd. L one P. I love. Let me give I you love one of my cars. I love that movie. It's a great movie, and it, it, has, it has something to say. Mm-hmm. It's not without a, a, a lesson, I guess. Yeah. But it's it is funny, and right? It, and it's got bounce, like everything in it. Is yeah, just I, I alive. don't. I, I don't think I'm funny enough to write something <laughs> like that. But but uh, like that kind of thing. If I could, if I could create something on that. That's like that light and bouncy, but that heavy at the same time. Yeah, and that's that's the sort of thing that you know, I'd like to do that. I don't know that, you know, it may be that you know the work I do will be more serious than that because that's the way my mind goes. Yeah. But I wouldn't mind writing something like that. I would the closest I've come to it is like having fun with with that that x-men yeah. story where i get to play around with funny dialogue what i'm like saying that. is to that end somebody read it probably me in in college when i did read it and probably reacted in a very it was a long time ago so i don't specifically remember but i'm i'm sure that somebody read it like this is awesome uh, this this conversation is great yeah the the difficulty for me at least would be marrying that kind of frivolous surface with a, a, yeah. a serious yeah. understructure and and having both the, the guts and the skill to do it. And I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't object to doing that someday. I just I I don't know. I mean, I, hell I don't Dr. Know. Seuss did it all the time. Yeah. In in a in a very deft way. That, yeah. You know he also he could draw too though. He could also draw. So let's okay. Perfect segue. Perfect segue. Comics are a visual medium. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the visual components of comics and your relationship with them, you as a writer. Explosions. Although you draw. I've seen some of your drawings in, in Astro City Notes. You're not, you're not terrible. Uh, I'm not completely hopeless. You, but... drew, you drew a female figure that looks better than a lot of female figures I've seen. I probably swiped it from Dan DiCarlo. I think it was. It might, might have been. It was. I think it was a Star Woman design or something. Uh huh. And it it had that hip to waist ratio, so it might have been Dan DiCarlo. Um, I I uh, at one point I did a costume design back when I was on Power Man Iron Fist for a character named Fira, and I literally traced a Dan DiCarlo Betty and Veronica pinup page and changed the details so that you know this is the way I could get my ideas across. Basically, the way the way I've described it sometimes is I draw well enough. That if I worked really, really hard, I could possibly get hired drawing one of my stories, at which point I would put on my writer hat and I'd want that artist fired because he's not good enough. I draw well enough 
so that I can do a page layout if it's a tricky layout and I want to show the artist, no, no, this is what I mean. Or I can do a costume design. Sometimes right. a good one, sometimes not a good one. I designed triathlon's costume, so there you go. Well, I want to talk about triathlon. Um, but, you know, I, I have enough drawing skills so that I know what, you want. what goes into a page, and I know how not to overplot to the point where the page is going to look cramped. I think that's also one of the reasons why uh, there are artists who like to work with me is that I give them stories that they can draw well, yeah. that they don't have to fight to make look good on the page. But early on when Scott McCloud and I were falling in love with comics and deciding that this is what we wanted to do, I started drawing comics of my own. And what I discovered early on was I really like doing the storytelling and I hate drawing the backgrounds. Yeah. We all and, do. And yeah, but the difference is I hate drawing the backgrounds enough that I'm not going to do it. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I, I, I realized there's two major aspects to comic books drawing. There's storytelling, which I was fascinated by, and there's illustration, which I would rather have somebody else do. <laughs> so I decided eh, the two of them are tied up together, so maybe I should be a writer yeah. and let somebody else do this. And these days, I mean, I did a, a – when I was on Conan – there was a period where, where Kerry Nord was having trouble with the deadlines, and the thing that was messing him up the most was working out the layouts. And for a while, we had Tom Yates doing layouts for him. And then at one point, Scott Alley said, you know, I wish you could do what Mike Mignola does on Hellboy, where he just, you know, roughs out these layouts. And I said, I might be able to do that. Send me some of what he does. And he sent me some, and I said, I could do this. I, I wouldn't be as good. Sure. But I could do this. And for like seven issues of Conan, I did layouts, stick figures and, you know, blocky shapes for sure. temples and things like that for, for Carrie to work from. And I did it until Carrie said, okay, I got it. You know, I know what you mean. I know how to translate the script into what you want. I'm good to go. I don't need to help anymore. But that made me think that at some point I would love to do comics where I did the script and layouts and a finishing artist came in and did all the other stuff and maybe someday I'll get to I'll get to do that but yeah I I, I don't want to I don't want to draw folds in cloth and and fire hydrants and buildings and cars are the worst yeah just just the foundations of buildings where the building meets the sidewalk so that it looks natural the hell with that, you know. That's for that's for people who like doing that sort of thing, um, or can tolerate doing yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, but you have enough visual sense, uh, enough that you certainly have opinions. Yeah, and they, we'll talk about triathlon because I remember when you introduced triathlon, you and I went back and forth quite. I a bit. could tell you're misspelling it just from the way you're pronouncing it. I probably it's, am. It's triathlon. There's no extra a. Did I say triathlon? You did. All right. Several times. Sorry. What I remember most, though, is going back and forth with you about his hairdo. Yeah. Trying to figure out what his hair was going to look like. Right. Because you had a notion in your head, and we were trying to figure this out. And for some reason, it was me and you. George was not particularly involved. Maybe like he had done a hairdo you didn't like. He gave him this. I mean, I had done. I was trying to give him a, a look to his head that was basically wedge-shaped. 
because you know triathlon he's got a triangle emblem yes you know give him a head that's that suggests a triangle and george was giving him this you know flat top 1980s kid and play you know not hi-hat flat top, yeah, but, but a, it was a, a flat top a fade, yeah and and it looked out of date and i wanted to find a way to fix it without scrapping it you know some uh, modify it mold it into something that worked and i think that's probably what we were talking about yeah because i know i did a bunch of drawings and like none of them were working I'm like, i don't understand what it's what it's going for it ended up being a flat top mm-hmm. <laughs> it ended yeah. up going going nowhere but is that do you find that to be the case in general when you're working with artists and designing characters i talked i asked mark wade about this when i spoke to him uh-huh. and his attitude was I can't do it at all. So the <laughs> artists, whatever they come up with is going to be great because they're the ones who have to draw it. And I, that's not my area. Uh-huh. You do get involved. Yeah. You are in the mix. Yeah. So when Alex and Brent are working on something for Astro City or when Mark was doing stuff for Thunderbolts or what have you, how do you, de- how do you decide how involved you're going to be? Or Well, it depends on whether I have ideas. Yeah. I mean, I had an idea for what I wanted Citizen V to look like. And I did a design, and I faxed it to Mark, and Mark improved on it immeasurably. The bones of the design are there. Right. But he just made it look a whole lot cooler. And I had specific ideas about what Atlas would look like, but they weren't ideas that I had to do a sketch on. They were just something that I kind of talked him through it. So Atlas and Citizen V are two characters who, you know, they bear my stamp to some degree. But, you know, somebody like Moonstone as Meteorite, that was all Mark. Um, I didn't have any particular ideas. And so he just he just went with it. With the Astro City characters, sometimes I don't have, usually I have an idea. And I'll describe the character just, you know, roughly. And if it's a character that Brent's going to design, he'll do a sketch and send it to me. The character Alex is designing, he'll do a sketch. Um, sometimes it's, you know, Brent does a design and it's not working and I'll make some suggestions and we'll send it to Alex and Alex will usually do a sketch that just nails it because Alex is a terrific designer. But there have been occasional characters in Astro City where basically I did the design. You know, I did a sketch. Everybody looked at the sketch and went, yeah, that's fine. So Star Woman was my design. The Bouncing Beatnik was my design. But, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about this new internet age we're in. Alex is in the Chicago area. Brent is in Northern California. Uh, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. But we can send sketches back and forth, you know, print out Brent's sketch and draw more lines on it and scan it and send it back again. You know, it's not the same thing as being in the same room, but it's, it's a lot closer. Sure. And along the same lines... You are also somebody with opinions about lettering yes, and fonts and balloons oh, yeah. and narrative boxes. Talked a little bit. Uh, Richard Starkings mentioned this a little bit when he was on here. Oh, what did he say? Just that you uh, can't remember the specifics. I, I should have re-listened to it before we talked, but it was a conversation about different fonts for different characters, different uh-huh. balloon shapes for different characters, all those variations you can do. Uh-huh. You like that stuff. No. You don't? There was a period where I did. Yeah. There was a period where it was we were working on Avengers and it was like, you know, let's 
uh, the Vision has his own balloon style, and Iron Man had recently been getting his own balloon style. Let's give Thor something yeah. that looks as Guardian, and 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 I look back on that stuff now, and it looks like somebody spilled chiclets all over the page because <laughs> everything's colored and everything is its own fancy thing, and it, I I think it gets in the way. I agree that what I want. What these, were you going for at that point? Like, what was uh, the idea behind? Oh, all that variety. Everybody was in love with the tricks that you could do with digital. Yeah. You know, you could design a, a balloon shape or a balloon style that looked like chrome, <laughs> you know, and, and because it was a computer, you could do it every time. Yeah. And it was something that if you were doing it hand-drawn, it would be a complicated mechanical process, but on a computer, you can make it look cool. But was there a story advantage to it? The story advantage was more, you know, it was, it was, you could give the characters the visual equivalent of a voice. Now you can give them a character voice and the Thor talks a particular way, but if you give him a, if his own font, then, then uh, it's, it's, you associate that, you know, you put a tone to it, you put a, a, an accent or something to it. And, and I don't think it's a, you know, I, I think that at the time we were just, you know, excited about what could be done and played with it for a while and then realized that, well, maybe this isn't so good. And I'm still very particular about lettering. But for instance, when we were doing Conan and I was working with Richard, we had a caption style that was like this old beat up typewriter trying to look like Robert E. Howard's, you know, pulp manuscripts. Yeah. And Conan himself had these hard-edged, angle-edged balloons. And that was it. Those were the, the styles. Everyone else had a normal balloon. We did some stuff with Aerosmith where this was something Richard had come up with. He said, uh, you know, you've got, you've got French guys talking. I've come up with a, a, a font that looks like, you know, uh, <laughs> French bande dessinée graphic albums. And so once we had that, then the German guys had to have their own fonts and, and so forth and so on. But these days, I want distinctive-looking lettering, but I want it simple, I want it easy to read, and I have... It, it, sometimes it drives me nuts when I see... It used to be that the letterer did the panel borders. Okay. That the pencil pages would go to the letterer. The letterer would letter the balloons, draw in the panel borders, and then it would go to the inker because the panel borders were mechanical. And as a result, the panel borders were done with the same pen that did the word balloons. And they were the same weight. And nowadays, you've got people doing lettering on the computer, and they're, they're not looking at the actual page of art. They're looking at a scan and they're looking at it blown up because it's, you know, they're, they're, they're fitting things together. And a lot of times the lettering will just come out too small. Yeah, it looks anemic. Nobody's looked at it at print size. Or, even more so, the lettering will be thinner than the panel borders. And it'll just look like it doesn't belong, like it doesn't have any weight, it doesn't have any authority. Yeah. Or because... In order to do a computer balloon that butts to the top of a panel, you have to actually do this, this extra work to make it cut off right. All the balloons float now. It's faster to just have the balloons float. But if the balloons float, if they're not anchored, then they don't establish, you know, a balloon that's anchored to the edge of the, of the panel 
says this balloon is at the same level as the edge of the panel. There's a proscenium going on, and you're looking past the panel border and the balloons at the action. If the panel border and the balloons don't have anything to do with each other, it's just floating, and it starts to look cluttered. So, you know, a, a rounder balloon has a stronger footprint than a wide but thin yeah. balloon. So, you know, you look at old Alex Toth stories, those word balloons sit on the page with authority and they are part, part of, of the, the design. Yeah. They're part of the, the dynamics of the structure. John Workman yeah. similarly is, is incorporating it into the, the page. A lot, of, a lot of comics today, the word balloons are just trying to get out of the way. They're trying to get out of the way of the art. They don't have anything to do with the dynamics. They look wimpy. They don't lead your eye particularly well. And one of the things I hate is when you have a caption that somebody has decided, we're going to have all the captions that come from Nightwing have this little Nightwing symbol in the upper left, and then they're going to have this fade color that makes it a little bit hard to read. It's not completely hard to read, but it's a little bit hard to read. And we're going to take this very, very computer you know, artifact-looking thing, and we're going to put it over artwork that's very roughly inked and gestural, and it doesn't harmonize at all. Yeah. You know, if you've got this, if, if you've got Jim Lee and Scott Williams, there's so much precision to that work that if you have this computer artifact-type balloon, it's harmonizing with the artwork because you've got that same level of precision. But if you've got Tim Sale as your artist then the balloons, the captions, they need to look more organic. Loosen up, bro. Because they've got to play against that much more gestural artwork. And Tim has enough clout that Tim says, I want the lettering to look like this. And he gets what he looks like. But but there's a lot of artists out there who, yeah, you're doing a Batman book. The Batman books all get lettered the same, whether you're... A, a really crisp, precise artist or whether you're a gestural artist or whatever. And, and then the lettering might be too small and it just doesn't harmonize. It doesn't add up to an aesthetically pleasing page that feels like it's confidently taking you through the story. So that's my big gripe about, uh, about lettering. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I just, I remember... I certainly remember that period at Marvel. Nothing mm. was as bad as the Human Torch balloon that was a little bit on fire. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> right in that very book, there was the the Rocky Thing balloon. I still think that made more sense than the Human Torch balloon that was a little bit on fire. I wanted I wanted to see the always stretchy Reed Richard balloons where the the stuff was a little distorted, and then the Invisible Girl could speak, and it was always well, hers pa- were always pa- a little bit faded. The balloons were. Yeah, but the best, you know, if they really wanted to go to town on it, they would have made them translucent so that you could see the art through the balloons the way some comics do it. And so they'd be like, ooh, look, invisible balloons. Uh, But yeah, I remember Richard said that you you were certainly at that time of that opinion. And, you know, theoretically through Aerosmith and stuff, you're still tinkering with and and finding ways to to sort of... Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a... There's a series I'm working on now that hasn't been announced yet where I've been talking with John Rochelle, who's going to letter it, and saying, you know, I want to look at Alex Toth lettering. I want to look at Roy Crane lettering. I want to do this sort of thing to modernize it, but I want to take these strengths of it and I want to incorporate it. I want, you know, I want this particular book 
to have lettering that doesn't look like anything else, but is nonetheless still absolutely simple and clear and easy to read. So it doesn't get in the way of the story by being, being flashy and distracting, but it still has its own distinctive character. Like Paul Grist lettering. Yeah. But you wouldn't just have Paul Grist letter it? No, Paul's, you know, slow. <laughs> that's just when you were describing that lettering. I was like, that's, that's kind of like what Paul Grist does. Paul, you know, a lot of the strengths that I'm talking about in, in toast lettering, clearly Grist has reacted to those. But Grist is also clearly influenced by Dave Sims lettering sure. and others. I mean, when I was first getting into comics, you know, there were... Tomb of Dracula was lettered by John Costanza, and it had this this really gothic feel that that worked well from from what you know from, with Costanza's work. X Men was Orzakowski, and it had right. this crisp science fictional sheen that was helped along. Every now and then, there'd be an issue that wasn't lettered by Tom, and the dialogue wasn't as good. And the dialogue wasn't as good because it wasn't being delivered with that, with such conviction. It was like all of a sudden everybody's acting job was a little off. It wasn't that Chris was writing it differently, but it was being presented differently. Yeah. And since the era of computer lettering began, we've gotten a lot more simultaneously standardized and varied because you can establish that the Superman books have different lettering than the Batman books have different lettering than the Spider-Man books, even if the same guy is doing the lettering because he can have his own, you know, he can have a, a, a style palette for each book. But at the same time, the balloons are going to be placed the same way and they're going to be overlapped the same way and the tails are going to work the same way because it's a particular aesthetic that even if you're changing the way the edge of the balloon works, you're not changing the aesthetic with how it's done. The mechanics of the balloon. Yeah, so I think, I think that lettering is graphic design, it's package design, it, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the art. But I think that you can redesign it for each individual series so that, you know, one of the joys of the Tintin books is they read the way they do because they're lettered the way they are. That, you know, Doonesbury wouldn't be as good if the lettering was better. <laughs> Part of the reason it reads the way it does is is that is the lettering is a little scritchy scratchy, a little sort of tentative and it and it has their you know, that that There's a voice. Yeah. There's a, a a voice in the in the way it's written. Right, right. It's sound where there's no sound. For better or for worse had a voice. And certainly Cerebus. Everybody had a voice, and uh, it didn't get in the way, but it created texture and identity. And, and I think that now that we're in this computer era and we've gone through the, look at all the things we can do, we can now get into the stage of, okay, we have a lot of tricks. Yeah. Now let's figure out how to use, you know, what tricks are worth using and how we can use the ones we have better. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. I want to get your explanation of another thing you mentioned. Oftentimes you and Eric Larson on Twitter will go uh, back and forth on, and I, I'm all for it. I tend to hit like on a bunch of these things. Things that comics can do that other media can't. Yeah. People love to compare comics to something else, and comics are their own thing. You, you use the phrase graphic simultaneity. Yeah. I want you to 
explain that further because I think I know what you mean. Okay. But I don't know what you mean. If you have, if you're writing a story and you say, you know, help, help, shouted the man as I shot him. Yeah. Help, help is here. I shot him is here. If they're not in the same place. If you have a comic book panel and you got a guy shooting another guy and he's saying, help, help, it's happening at the same time. It's graphically simultaneous. And in comics, you can do this in ways that prose can't, that film can't. I mean, one of my favorite film moments, have you seen the movie Singing in the Rain? Oh, a while ago, but I have seen it. Yet. Okay. There's the point where Don Lockwood explains his background. It's the dignity, always dignity speech. He's explaining how he and Cosmo Brown came to Hollywood. And he's telling this story. And as he's telling the story, you're seeing the truth. So when he talks about how they toured Europe, you see them working rinky-dink shows in the Midwest. Uh, you see, you know, well, we, we considered uh, all of the offers that were coming in. And they're, they're at a newsstand in Hollywood and it's raining. And they got, you know, they're looking through the want ads before the, the, the papers fall apart. And the old watchword was always dignity, always dignity. And we see them doing slapstick antics so you're getting a story and you're seeing a story and what you're hearing and what you're seeing contradict each other in comics you do that graphically in movies that was done by having the overvoice and the pictures happening simultaneously in comics you do that by having the caption and the panel happen simultaneously or a thought balloon yeah but in books like electra assassin frank miller and bill sienkiewicz would have one story track going through the visuals, and then they'd have two others going through different sets of captions that were in the same panels. You know, you had one person's caption narrative and another person's caption narrative happening at the same time. You couldn't do that in a movie. Right. You just, you just, you couldn't, you, you couldn't lay keep up audio with it. over audio. Yeah. But with the graphic simultaneity of comics, you can put a lot of information contradictory information multi-viewpoint information into the same panel and it's all happening at once when i read it i didn't take it that far i uh -huh. just thought it was the idea of being able to show two things happening at the same time uh which is sort of what you're saying but more more dramatical dramatical yeah yeah you have comics biases there are things you you don't like Probably. You don't like yeah. the X-Men particularly, post-original X-Men. Well. You're just not keen to it. You're I, I, it. I, there, was, there was a while where I liked them a whole lot, and then things happened, and it broke my... In the story, things happened. Yeah. Okay. And it, it broke my connection to them, that, that, that it didn't feel like these are my guys anymore. And I drifted away from X-Men, and now when I come back and I, I read an X-Men book, I generally, you know, I appreciate the craft with which it's done, but I'll never feel the same way about those characters as I did when I was 16 years old. Right. So that, that brings me to, I guess that explains, like going back to Avengers Forever, there was a point where there was a, a team of future Avengers. Uh-huh. And yet most of them figured out, and there was like one slot missing. You need to fill it with one extra person. You didn't know who to, who to put in there. So you and I were on the phone. There's no way you remember this, but I remember uh, it super well. 
every single character I suggested, you were just completely uninterested. Uh, and it was all characters that I had memories of as a kid. Right, right. That you had a connection yeah, to so that I, was I just like, didn't. How about cloak or dagger? How about uh-huh. this? And the one I really wanted that I was like, this would be so awesome was a Chimelian, one of the horse aliens from Power Pack. Oh, all right, Kurt just made a face like he like he ate like the most <laughs> bitter, disgusting food. Now, Power Pack is a book I loved. I loved it too. I just don't like the visual design on the Chimelians. But Carlos would have killed it. He would have drawn such an awesome horse alien. He probably would have if he has that connection too. But he, a lot of that guy can draw animals. He well, studied yeah, like but, animal but, biology. But but here's the thing: we were talking about who should be on the team. Yeah, and. Tom suggested She-Hulk. Okay. And I thought, well, She-Hulk would be okay. She's fun to write. She's visual. She's somewhere. And I mentioned it to Carlos, and he just shut it down. And the reason he shut it down was actually a writing reason, as it turned out, that we were putting all of these characters in who were broken in some way, who were damaged, who were struggling. And he said, She-Hulk is happy. <laughs> she's, she's having a good time. She's not messed up. But he... It was a period of Avengers that he was not as connected to as he was with the Roy Thomas Avengers or the, the, the Engelhardt the, the stuff. Engelhardt stuff. Yeah. yeah, he and I are both big Engelhardt Avengers <laughs> fans. You can see that oh, in yeah, that, that whole series. And you know, we have a, a, a similar sensibility when it comes to what we like. And I think that, you know, in, in all likelihood, if I'd said we could have a Chimelian his response would have been, by the time I met them, I was too old. Right. But, I mean, do you remember which character it was that we eventually put in? Yes. It was a Quicksilver's daughter. It was like a future Quicksilver's daughter. And she had the green and the green and light green suit. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not in the book. You sure? There's the Crimson Dynamo. Yes. There's the Black Panther. Titania. Right? There's or, or, that's who it was. Kill right? Raven, Thundra. Thundra. That's what I'm thinking of. I guess when you when you say Quicksilver, you know, no, it was it was uh, we had a character we called Jocasta, but She's she pregnant. was she was yeah she right, was more organic, but we didn't have a a. a I remember that being daughter. a decision at some point that it was like oh, this will be the, the last member, and I remember thinking like what? Come on, Quicksilver's daughter? I'm telling. I don't, know, I don't think it, we put anybody in that book that we made up. I remember that being discussed. It, may, it wasn't it, in the book because it, I will, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cop to this. Oh, oh a, you mean Quicksilver's daughter is Luna. That's true. It is, that's true. She, yeah. Was she in the book? I don't remember. Um, I, I, I can see a point where you know, I, can, I can believe that we discussed, hey, how about a grown-up Luna? That's right. an Avengers connection. That's a this. Yeah. That, you know, um, but, but she's, not, she's not there. I'll, I can her. say this. I'll cop to this with that book. At a certain point, because like, the schedule started getting, like we were falling behind. Uh-huh. Uh, and I spent so much time just talking to Carlos on the phone about uh, everything. Uh, 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 there was a point where I wasn't even like reading the, the plots. Uh-huh. I just sort of scan them and then the pages would come in and I would just look at the pages and I could tell kind of what was, but I really have no, I'm not entirely sure what happens in those 12 issues. I should sit uh, and reread it. But at a certain point, I was just sort of very enamored with the artwork. Uh-huh. I just marveled over every page. Carlos did it dynamite job and then and then he threw me a bone in the, those last issues where he threw in the characters from that what if i had drawn uh-huh. like they're in that sequence and i was like mm-hmm. oh God, this he threw bad. in characters that we designed for avengers world of chance <laughs> so man the story of that book coming together and all that that's i might have to do a whole show just with that or i got to get carlos on here at some point yeah 
That would be great. I would love to. It just it has to be. I like doing it in person. Uh huh. I guess I guess I could make an exception for somebody in Spain. Two bits I want to get. Two two last things. Two bits. Shaving a haircut. Two last things I want to talk about. Can you give me your your version of events with Gorilla Comics? <laughs> <laughs> I got the story from Mark. I got his version of events. Mark's Mark's version is much more entertaining. But you were of of the people involved. You uh-huh. were one of the few people that finished off some of your work. Yes. Who took it to its full fruition. You're working with Stuart Eminent, who is the one of the many artists you've worked with who we have not mentioned, so we should mention him. Yes. Shock Rockets and Superstar. S- Stuart is dynamite. He's unbelievable. Stu- he keeps getting better. Yes. It's unreal. Like his work now versus the Legion stuff he was doing where he was kind of doing it Adam Hughes. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, man, this guy is unstoppable. Like how he keeps... Yeah. But... And, and he's... His work has an incredible virtue in it in that it's cartooning. Yes. That every page he draws, every character attitude, there's good, solid, expressive cartooning under that. Whether he finishes it in a cartoony style like Agents of Next Wave, whatever, or Next Wave, Agents of Hate. Yeah. Or whether he does, you know, super realistic rendering like he did with Superman's Secret Identity. Underneath it all, it's cartooning. And the finish... He does amazing finishes, no matter what kind of style he's choosing. Yeah, he's to, so right? good. But the virtue of that work is that the storytelling is incredibly strong because the cartooning, you know, it's 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 again, it's the it's the difference between. I was talking before about storytelling versus illustration. I'm a hundred percent. Storytelling is cartooning. Yes. Illustration is drawing. Yes. And Stuart is a master cartoonist. Yep. And he's a master illustrator, and he can put the one on top of the other, but he never gets into a situation where you're doing an illustration that just doesn't move the story along. I agree. He's, just, he's, he's, he's an amazing artist. You're preaching to, uh, you, you, you tell me nothing I don't know, but the listeners will learn something. But, but anyway, we started by talking about, oh, Gorilla. Yeah. Gorilla for sale. Tell um, me about yours, because you had started... Astro City pre-Gorilla. So you're already yeah. doing that with a homage or homage, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, you, you were already on, your, on that track. Mm-hmm. We wanted, I mean, I talked to Mark about this. This started with me and Mark, and we, we brought in other guys. And the idea was there, there had been times in the past when people would say, let's do a, a new imprint and the image guys were all about the art, so let's make it all about the writing. There were a couple of times that I was roped in to discuss a writer-centric... Were you in talks to be part of Bravura? No, okay. no, no. I mean, Bravura was mostly artists anyway. I mean, it was, it, it was artist-writers. It was yeah. Chaikin, and it was Simonson, and it was right. Starlin, and then there was Gil Kane working with Stephen Grant. But no, no, the, the things, whenever I'd, I would be pulled in to talk about this sort of thing it ultimately didn't happen which was a shame because i came up with some great imprint names but there was one meeting i had where there was me there was neil gaiman there was chris claremont and there was a couple of other guys and i won't name everybody who was there because i'm going to make fun of one of them <laughs> and we were taking this meeting and i was you know i was talking about how what what i would want out of an imprint like this is you know, one of the big problems that you have in, in working in comics is you, you finish a project, you go on to another project, and you're usually, you know, often working with another editor, possibly in another company. And whatever 
learning curve there was on the last project. You now have to go through it all over again as you talk about, you know, the production standards you want or the way it's going to be promoted or packaged or, or whatever. And I said, the advantage of having an imprint like this is we can build a team where we've got a promo guy who, you know, on the sixth project you're doing knows all of the stuff that they've learned from the last five projects. You know, a, a uh, manufacturing person, editors, assistant editors, whatever. You've got a machine that's built around infrastructure. What's the next thing you want to do? Great. We already know how to do your stuff well, so we don't have to start from scratch again. And that was, that was my thinking. And, and we went, like, we had lunch and came back. And one of the people I will not name talked about how we, we would all create characters for this imprint. And we would, you know, develop them and we would build up the, the value of the imprint. And then four years down the line, we'd sell it for millions of dollars. We'd sell all the character rights and cash in. And at that point, you know, Neil kind of looked at me and I was looking back at him and both of us, you know, you could tell from our expressions what we're going is we're in the wrong room because our interest in having an imprint like this was we want a home. We want a home where we can work for the rest of our careers and do the things we want to do and have it be done well. And there were at least two guys in the room whose idea was, yeah, let's build something like Image and then sell it for like $20 million and we're all fat and happy. And, and I'm going, if you got this thing and it's working so well, why would you want to sell it? Just keep going. <laughs> So that didn't happen, and the next time there was an imprint discussion like that, it didn't happen. But at one point I called Mark and I said, you know, screw this imprint of writers. What about just an imprint of creators? You know, the old United Artists model. Let's get together and, and, and do the kind of things we want to do. And that became the foundation of Gorilla. And the great mistake of Gorilla was we had a guy who was financing it, and it turned out he didn't have any money. He thought he was going to leverage having all of these comic book creators into getting investors. So he told us he did have the money, and then when he couldn't get investors, he didn't have the money, and the guy he was working with, who was our manager, was advancing money for things like ads and, and posters and things like that off of a mortgage he took out on his house because he didn't want to tell us that the guy that he had brought us into business with didn't have any money. And eventually the fact that he didn't have any money came out at a point when the first few books were already solicited. So we, we decided well, we, had to, we had to follow through. You know, We'd promised books we had to deliver. And in the end... You know, Mike Waringo and Todd DeZago, you know, they'd been doing Telos before. They just kept doing Telos. Right. Everybody else w got to a point where they weren't able to continue. I took out another mortgage on my house so that I could pay Stuart and I could get these books done. And I had promised the Shock Rockets miniseries and a Superstar one shot. And I hadn't promised more beyond that. <laughs> but I promised those and I got them done. And I think that, you know, you were asking before why I told people when I was sick. And it's because <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make promises and not come through. If I can't do something, I want to tell you why. 
if I say I'm going to do something, I want to get it done. Right. So I was serious about, you know, we've got to at least finish shock rockets. We've got to do the superstar one shot. We've got to, but you didn't take, like, for example, like Mark took empire and did it over at, at DC. No. Cause I didn't, I mean, he empire disappeared for a while right. and it came back at DC and they reprinted the first couple of issues in a special and then went on and finished it. Like um, why not take superstar and see if somebody else would want to publish it? Um, we could do that. In fact, Superstar is is usually on my mind in one way or another because there's more I want to do. Um, and IDW did a reprint of it, right? Yeah, fairly recently. Yeah, but I mean, I get sick a lot, and <laughs> and so you know there there are usually 19 things I want to do at any one time, and I've got time to do three of them. So someday I would like to do more Superstar, but in this particular case, we did a project. You know, we could have gone someplace else and tried to do it. I forget. You know, I think that after that, we went off and we did the Superman Secret Identity. Probably. I, I don't um, remember the timeline. So we, we, you know, we kept working together. And I didn't, I mean, having done Shock Rockets and Superstar, I didn't want to go and then take them to a company that would assert ownership over them. I mean, look how long it took Mark to get the rights to Empire. <laughs> you know, he did, he finished the project in a way that it worked. But then he had to deal with the bureaucracy of finding a way to get the book, you know, get the rights back long after that book was out of print. I've never had to do that. Superstar has always been owned and controlled by me and Stuart. Shock Rockets has always been owned and controlled by me and Stuart. Right. So we were able to take the Shock Rockets series and go to Dark Horse and do a trade paperback. And then when it was out of print at Dark Horse, we were able to take it to IDW and do a hardcover. And there has never been any issue about who owns that material and who controls that material. You made me think of something else. Uh-oh. Now there's a third thing. A third thing. Instead of two things. Does it involve rutabagas? Well, we're about to find out. Okay. So you talk about coming up with new ideas all the time, having more ideas. Yeah. Astro City is huge. Conceptually. Yeah. There's years there's a and lot years of history. It. Yeah. You've been doing it now for close 15, to twenty years. Twenty years? Yeah. New ideas keep popping up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How do you how do you decide which ones you're gonna do? How do you decide if something new pops up, how it pushes something else out of the way? Uh, admittedly, I've not read all of Astro City, I've read a bunch of it. Uh-huh. Early on, you know, there's a lot of people asking about Quarrel. You talk about Quarrel being a character you love. Uh-huh. Have you done that story? Have I just not read that one yet where you, you get into quarrel? It starts in issue eighteen. <laughs> okay, so you're finally getting to that. I'm finally getting to it. So like Although it's it's now a different story than it would have been back then because she's fifteen years older. That's right, you're going in real time. Yeah. So is that like how does that mess with you? Like just you, like emotionally and mentally, the fact that you can only do so much. And time keeps going. Yeah. And there's only so many stories. Or is there, or is there some plan at some point to put out like, this is what I would do, and it's just all prose? No. No? No, no. I, I, uh, if I have a story idea and I can't realize it, I'll just put it in the back of my head okay. and hope I'll get a chance to do it someday. But always if, in comics. You'll never write an Astro City novel. 
Uh, no, we've talked about writing okay. Astro City short stories. I don't think I want to write an Astro City novel, although there are superhero novels I want or to write, short- so I'm not sure what the, what, what, what the difference is, <laughs> except that it's not set in Astro City. But Astro City doesn't feel like novels to me. Okay, right. Um, uh, that's fair. I mean, uh, certainly... There have been long arcs. Yeah. The Dark and, Age could and, have and been there, a novel. And there are, you know, it, it's, it's been brought up before yeah. that people have said, why don't you write an Astro City novel? Some of them, you know, from D.C. saying, we will publish it. And I could see doing prose short stories, but somehow novels don't feel right to me. Well, just in terms of a... Of a efficient way to get the stories out yeah i'm or is astro city so tied to comics that to do it in any format that's not comics seems disrespectful i mean that no that book is so chock full of references that i know i don't get Uh, and some of them are are beautifully disguised where you think you know what it is like i might be wrong i'm not entirely sure what this is supposed to be there are a lot of people who explain (laughs) what the Astro City connections are on the internet and are wrong. Is there a significance to the date August 1st? Uh, why? Because you've got Augustus first as part of the, the first family. No. Okay. Because no. the other one, Uncle Julie, looks like Julie Schwartz. Yeah. So I didn't know if the other guy was something and like August 1st was the, the release date of some specific comic or something. No, no. I think I gave him the name Augustus because I wanted something that sounded impressive. <laughs> And I had read a couple of novels. One was called Friday's Tunnel and another one was called February's Road. And there was a third one called Ismo that I don't know if I ever read. But the father in that story was Augustus Calendar. And he named his children things like Friday and February calendar names. But when I was thinking of a name for Dr. First, I remembered Augustus Calendar. And I said, Augustus, that's a good name. The idea that it refers to August 1st is not one that I had realized until you just asked. Really? Yeah. Okay, there you go. Fantastic. So when you, when you finally tell this quarrel story, uh-huh. and it is a different story than it was, yeah. you have the impulse to, in the back matter, say this is what it was going to be? No, no, because I, I didn't... I had never... There was a story, there's story material, there's stuff about Quarrel that I want to bring out, that I want to make clear. Back when I wanted to do that in like, uh, you know, imagining do it, say, in 1998, I I hadn't worked out the story. I just had this material that I knew could fit into a story and it could work something like, oh, something like this. And... Echoes of that, pieces of that will turn up in the other story, but now it's going to be framed in a story about Cracker Jack and Quarrel are acrobats, but they're acrobats who are getting older. So their bodies are going to slow down. They're not going to be able to do what they used to do. How do they respond to that? And that is going to lead us to looking back at when they were younger, when they could do everything and how their dynamic worked and how their characters worked. So the material is going to come through. But I couldn't, I couldn't do a thing and say, if I'd written this in 1998, you know, because then I'd have to make up the story I would have told <laughs> in 1998. Instead of what I had was I had various pieces of the story and those pieces will be there, but they will be pieces of a different story because now I have this whole other thing to tell with them about aging. Got it. 
you know, I have a story I've wanted to tell for years about the Enforcer, and I'll probably be getting to that within a year or so. You laugh. Why? I laugh because I, I was, uh, I was just today, I was looking at some of the back matter for the first Astro City trade. Uh huh. Where you're showing the designs for the Enforcer mm-hmm. and all these different designs and all these things that you, you want to get to. Uh huh. Like, you know, we're going to use all these. Uh-huh. You wrote in, in the tech, in the back matter. And, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that you're, you are going to get to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just we... amazing that these seeds that get planted so, so, and I'm, I'm just, you know, like my career may... is shorter, but the, the comic that you're holding in your hand was originally drawn in, in 2007. Mm-hmm. And I've only now finished it because uh-huh. I'm a better artist now than I was in 2007, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Oh, oh, there's a novel I want to write that I, I came up with it so long ago that the title I came up with for it was American Gods. And when, you know, probably about 10 years later, when Neil Gaiman announced that his next novel would be called American Gods, I thought, oh, crap. He came up with my idea. And then I read the book and I said, no, he didn't. Mine is completely different. I can do something else, but now I need a new title for Gods it. Gods of America. Uh, no, no, no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what it's called. How about American odds? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that's something, you know, there are characters that I made up in high school that I'm still going to use someday. Maybe. Maybe. But you know, you know how it is. If you're in a creative field, you come up with more ideas than you can use. Yeah, I have a list over my over my desk of yeah. titles of just uh, one day want to get to. We will all die with ideas unexpressed. Untold stories, yeah. Which is good because if there was a point that came where we ran out of ideas and we didn't die, life would <laughs> suck. <laughs> So, so the fact remains that a lot of these ideas that you want to get to, a lot of the ideas that I want to get to, we're not going to get to because we're going to keep coming up with new ideas. And some of the old ones we'll use, and some of the new ones we'll use, Sometimes and some of them will just into each other, yeah, become a new third idea. Yeah, and some some of them will just stay on the shelf and never happen. But I'm still not going to. For one thing, I don't know which one's which, and for another. <laughs> You know, I don't want to talk about the ideas that I'm not going to use on the internet because then, you know, they're what, used. Yeah. 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 And, and what happens if I, if one of them interacts with another new idea and there's a whole new thing? And now, I mean, one of the, one of my regrets about JLA Avengers is I made a joke in an interview at some point when we were talking about the possibility of JLA Avengers. I said, I want to do this scene where Hawkeye sees the JLA Avengers, uh, sees, sees, the, sees the JLA. And he goes, ah, a bunch of Squadron Supreme wannabes. And Wizard printed it. Now you can't use it. Well, no, I did oh, use did. it. I but, read it a long time ago. I but when I, when I was doing the book, I got a lot of, of email from people saying, are you going to do that Wizard joke? And some of them knew it was my joke, and some of them just knew it had been in Wizard, and they didn't know whose joke it was. They thought it was Wizard's joke mm. and wanted to know if I was going to use it. And that line would have been better as a surprise. So here's something I, I said ahead of time. Right. And then I turned out to get to write the story. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a bit. It's not a serious. It, we, it wasn't like spoiling anything big and structural. But still, 
I, I, I think a bit like that is funnier if it comes on you from surprise, or by surprise, that if you go, oh, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Oh, look, he yeah, did it. All right, you've written huge characters. Avengers, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, uh-huh. Conan, major icons of comics. You've got your entire universe, Astro City. But you've also dealt with Power Company, Ninjack, Ninjack. Power Man and Iron Fist, uh-huh. Vamp- like smaller, smaller things. Uh-huh. How do you, for things that you don't have that youthful connection to, you, know, you love this character as a kid or whatever, or it's a character of your own creation. Although I guess Power Company was sort of that. Yeah. How do you bring the fire or the energy to something like Ninjack or Jello Man? Uh, uh, well, Ninjack was basically a new idea. Back when they were. Right, this was the Acclaim Comics yeah. Ninjack. Back a teenager when, or something. Back when they were introducing Ninjack the first time, you know, when Bob Layton was running the company and it was Joe Casada and whoever. I was talking to Bob at a at a convention, and you know he had a poster up for this new Ninjak thing, and I, and he was telling me about it, and I said, "Sounds good, but you know that name, Ninjak." He said, eh, "It's Ninja with a K on it for trademark reasons," and and I thought, "Yeah, it's funny, you know. I don't know if I'd do that, but hey, that that works for him." And then years later, when I was part of the the acclaim thing, Fabian, who was the editor, asked me, "You know, think about ideas," and I had. I had ideas for Shadow Man, and I had ideas for for uh, Dr. Mirage. No, for Exo. <laughs> okay, of course I, you would. He's Iron I, Man. I, I will no, no, Conan. I was. I was. I was uh, Makes perfect sense. I threw him an idea called Exo Menowar that was a, a team. Okay. Um, and it was basically it was an exoskeletal guy who was an army guy and a Air Force guy and a Navy guy. You know that that they had their different Menowar, specialties. I get it. But he'd already decided that other people were working on those and I had told him this you know I told him that that story I just told you about about Ninjak's name and I said you know it would be uh it'd be kind of funny you know to do a I think I had this idea in the shower shortly before talking to him and I said you know this this video game it's a Ninjak video game and the guy who wins the game unlocks the powers but releases all the video game villains out into the world and and eventually, you know, he finds out that then the game was designed to bring through this power and oppose these villains. And when he asks the, the you know this ancient Asian monk guy, you know, why is it called Ninjak? And the monk guy goes, Ah, it's Ninja with K on the end for trademark reasons. <laughs> and we put that in the story. Right. But I, I think what Fabian heard was, Oh, it's a video game that comes to life. And he went. I'm working for a video game yeah. company. That's the one I want you to do. And and we had a blast doing it. It was fun, but it was a new character. It was, you know, aside from the name Ninjak, I, you know, I I created this guy who was a kid with four sisters. I have four sisters. Ninjak's four sisters are all named after my sister's middle names. His parents are reverse named after my parents. My parents are Don and Sydney. So I had them as Dawn, D-A-W-N, and Sid. I brought in influences from Spider-Man, influences from Eisner, uh, influences from Madeline Lengel, and just, you know, that was essentially building a new thing. But, you know, then there are times when I wrote six issues of Night Thrasher. Right. 
Uh, I do not have any warm childhood memories or of Night Thrasher. Vampirella? Or... Um, with Vampirella, I had read a few Vampirella stories. I'd read the Archie Goodwin Vampirella stories, and those were really good. So I had somewhere to launch from to say, I want to do something that builds on the values, the, the, the good stuff in the, in the Archie Goodwin and Steve Engelhart story. Elvira. You were an Elvira story. Um, like it just seems like at some point you're right. It's like it's, it's the work of writing. Yeah. Or, are you able to find in every case a way to make it personal or? Well, not in every. I, I don't think I, I terribly succeeded all that well with Night Thrasher. Right. With Night Thrasher, I, I uh, ultimately, the thing was, you know, Night Thrasher had become the guardian of rage. Okay. And I said, okay, the thing is, it's a black Batman and Robin if Robin was the Hulk. Okay. What can we do with that? And built on that as an idea. But I wasn't sorry to stop writing it. <laughs> you know, I felt like what I was doing there was craft, but I wasn't. You know, I wasn't passionate about, ooh, ooh, I've always wanted to write Night Thrasher. You Jell-O Man. Yeah, I mean, let's end with Jell-O Man. I, I wrote one Jell-O Man story. Yeah. And really it came from, I mean, I, this may be a good story to end on. <laughs> we were... It, it, what was the dog's name before we get... Wobbly. To, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Jell-O Man's a stupid character. He's, <laughs> no. He's an advertising character. What? But... My friend Adam Phillips was editing the book, and he asked me to do it. And you know, it was it was gonna be fun to do. But we had this this thing that the the advertising agency had written up on Jello Man, where it was like he's edgy and cool. He's like Jack Nicholson crossed with Bill Murray. And I'm going, this is a character aimed at kids. They barely know who Bill Murray is. They don't know who Jack Nicholson is. And I was told, yeah, yeah, they don't they don't mean it. They're just saying he's cool, and they're trying to put in references people will understand. But if you actually had him act like Jack Nicholson, <laughs> they'd tell you to stop because Jack Nicholson is, is really too edgy yeah. for what they're doing. And I said, oh, we'll see about that. So I did this, this Jell-O Man story. It's like this eight-page story where some class trip is going to the Natural History Museum, and Jell-O Man is along for whatever reason because they're having Jell-O pudding pops for lunch dessert. But they're at the Natural History Museum and, and the Snackosaurus, one of Jell-O Man's foes, who I made up because, hey, he needs foes, Gotta have a foe. was there to steal all the pudding pops. But he's a Snackosaurus. He's like a Tyrannosaurus. He has these stubby little arms. So he, could only, he couldn't carry all of the pudding pops and he left one behind. So Jell-O Man who has spotted Snackosaurus because his cool sunglasses have rearview mirrors. He notices that, you know, there's this dinosaur that's moving. And he, he takes that last pudding pop and he tosses it to the Snackosaurus. And the Snackosaurus, it's too many. You know, it's too old. He's juggling them, trying to find a way to, you know, in deathless dialogue. Oh, no, it's too many. How Snackosaurus hold extra one? And I had Jell-O Man slide his sunglasses down and go, why don't you hold it between your knees? <laughs> and I figured, okay, they're going to cut this. We don't need, you know, lines in a, in a children's advertising comic for five easy pieces. They didn't notice. So that was the joy of writing Jell-O Man. I got to write the Snackosaurus, who I got to write with the same speech pattern as Tor from E.C. Seagar's Popeye. 
And I got to write this stupid advertising character doing a Jack Nicholson moment from Five Easy Pieces. And you did it in eight pages. And I did it, and that was eight pages, and then I was done. And I had this whole, uh, you know, if there was a second issue, I had other stuff planned. We were going to reveal that Jell-O Man was only one of a team of superheroes called the League of Just Desserts. And there was, uh, there was Pudding Pop. Sure. He was an old guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was uh, Jello Jiggler. She was the, the little sexy girl. Yeah. And uh, I know I'd invented a couple of others. And the, we were going to have, you know, a villain who he was traveling back in time to stop the origin of Jello. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can, you know, there's there's things you 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 find to do that you're just going to have fun with. There was no second issue. I never had to figure out how to stop the origin of Jello. It but, probably would have uh, been. I, I think that guy would have probably been some sort of a horse looking to stop the horse hoof see, Latinization. See, you're you're overthinking it. I think we were going to use the shoveler because he was already established oh, okay. as a villain. I mean, he had I a maybe, shovel. I maybe didn't overthink it. I might have gone dark. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, which um, is the easiest thing to do. Well, when we were first working on Jello Man, one of the stories was written. By Peter David, along with, you know, co-wrote it with, with his daughter. But his first idea was about this, some sort of clash over where the next Olympics were going to be set, which was in the news at the time. And I remember I was walking down like Third Avenue with Peter and he was explaining to me this to me. And I said, Peter, this is Jello. Who reading this knows anything about the process by which Olympic locations are set. They don't, you know, this comic is going to be read by six-year-olds. Yeah. And he said, you don't think they're going to care about that? I said, I don't think they're going to care about that at all. <laughs> and he, you know, I, he, he, he did a different story, a, yeah. a, a completely different story. But uh, I don't know, there's some lesson in there about uh, targeting your audience correctly. I completely relate to that one. I might have told this story before but when I, I wrote this X-Babies miniseries. And it came out of pitching a Spider-Ham miniseries. But somebody... it's, it's it's nice when you can have sentences. You can say sentences like out loud, like I wrote this X Babies miniseries that came out of pitching, pitching a Spider Ham series. <laughs> yeah, basically, I pitched a Spider Ham series, and the it, somebody was using Spider Ham. So yeah, <laughs> so there was a continuity conflict with Spider Ham. Yeah, somebody was already using Peter him. Porker. But the editor said, like, if you have any ideas for X Babies, that that could be something we we could talk about. So that weekend, I gave some thought. And my first idea for X-Babies, and I, I must have told this already, was that there was a woman upstate, you know, in Westchester County, whose mutant power was she kept having babies that had the powers of and looked like the X-Men. Uh-huh. Like, that was her bit. And, like, Professor X had her in a special hat. It was like the late, the, the old woman with, you know, who lived in a shoe. Uh-huh. But all the babies were X-Men. And she kept, every year she'd have another X-Baby. Uh-huh. And uh, Smitty, I was telling him this idea, and his, his response was, you actually want to sell this idea because you have an opportunity here to actually get something published. That's not going to get published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you are you are correct. And I, I, you know, I went back to the the drawing board, as it were, and came up with something else. But sometimes uh, we all need somebody to keep us in check. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate it. This took much. This was much longer than I thought it would be, but. Uh, you said you're not a podcast guy, and I hope this was a good one. Well, uh, it's certainly been painless from my point of view, but if it comes out well, I'll never know. 
Thank you, Kurt. music big chunk of conversation very happy to have him he doesn't do podcasts that often certainly not a podcast of that length and magnitude so thanks again kurt if you liked what you heard and you're listening on itunes which or or some other pod catcher podcast gear go to stuffsaidshow.com because at that site there's bonus content artwork links things of that nature you want to see that clip from singing in the rain dignity always dignity i've got it embedded you can watch it you want more information about heavy metals poisoning i've got a link to a pdf you want to know what star patch mother blitz quark and crouchback look like i've got that too stuff said show.com where you can also comment on the episode you just heard you can Ugh, what else can you do there? Those are the two main things. You can also email me through there or at stuffsaid at gmail.com. I'll get your emails. That's easy enough to do. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg Schiegel, G-R-E-G-G-S-C-H-I-G-I-E-L. That's the Twitter handle. From stuffsaidshow.com, you can go to pixcomic.com where you can buy my book or read the first chapter for free. And speaking of free, and speaking of things you could do at StuffSaidShow.com, this show is free to listen, to download, to listen to, to back episodes. So if you were so inclined, at StuffSaidShow.com, you can donate to support the show that I do for free. That makes me zero dollars. So if you donate, all that money would be super appreciated, or any of that money would be super appreciated. Super appreciated. I can't even say the words, but I would appreciate the gestures. What else can I tell you? The blah, 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 blah. Oh, iTunes. If you listen on iTunes, leave a review, please. That would be awesome. Five stars. And if you want to write a review, write either the words five stars or what can we write for this one? I should have thought of this in advance because I normally sometimes do. Write the words five stars or write The Courtship of Eddie Munster's Father. Yeah, The Courtship of Eddie Munster's Father. Just that as a comment or five stars. That would be awesome. Anyway, if you leave a review, it's supposed to help make the show noticed. Get noticed? Make the, Yeah, make the show noticed by other people. Wow. The show is also on the Acme Wave Projector Network at acmewaveprojector.com. The theme song for Stuff Said is by Craig Chin, who is at rudeanagrams.com. For more about me, go to hatterentertainment.com. H-A-T-T-E-R entertainment.com. That's 50 episodes, folks. Can I do 50 more? We'll find out. That's about all the stuff I have left to say. See you next time. Fifty or well, fifty is not that old. Fifty. Well, when I was little, fifty was very old. When I was little, I thought fifty was like, "Who? I'm fifty years old." 
then when you're older, you realize 50's like, hey, I'm in a band, Thursday night we play. Not when you're 10. <laughs> but when you're 10, when you're 10, you're like, I'm 50. I just shit all over myself. Because I'm 50. And I'm old, I'm ready to die. <laughs> la, 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 la.